house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. that the men in the white hats are the good guys. Uh, but not always. There are times when bad guys become our heroes and good guys become our villains. And ironically, at times, we find ourselves rooting for the outlaw. Hello, I'm Sydney Ellen Wade. And I'm Carolyn Burnham. And I will sell this house today. And welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz Film Institute presents 100 Years, 100 Snubs. Snubs. Every week on this head Oscar Buzz, you'll hear us talk about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy, but for this May miniseries, we're doing something a little different. Every week in May, we'll be looking back and choosing the 100 greatest Oscar snubs of all time. And we'll have special guests calling in to offer their choice for snub submissions. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my house with a red door. <laughs> Joe Reed. Hi. Uh, very excited to get to part three. I can't believe we're already at the midway point of this madcap endeavor, Chris. The, uh, it goes so fast. It, we, are, we are ascending the Matterhorn. <laughs> this feels like... Yeah, the biggest behemoth we've kind of done, and partly because we make it difficult on ourselves. You know, yes. it's just like it's just a list. We could just do a list, but no, no. we are you know paying pseudo tribute to the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies tradition. Right, we are also um, you know making it a good time hopefully we're making it a good time we're we're trying to cover a lot of bases with this this is one thing i wanted to bring up uh before we get into it we're we're trying to cover a lot of bases from the sort of the no-brainers, the ones we've talked about on this podcast a lot and been like, obviously this person should be an Oscar nominee, so it would be weird then if we did a list of 100 snubs and did not include them. But we also want to have some more interesting selections, some more sort of, uh, you know... Uh, left field personal Left field stuff. Exactly, exactly. We want to we wanna keep it fresh and exciting, and, and it's a balance. Plus, we don't want to overload on any particular actors or any particular films or categories, so we are spreading the wealth in that We've way. We've set some so, rules. We've set yes. uh, some parameters that also maybe or may not have helped us narrow this down to a list of 100. Also, yes. we have our guest submissions. We don't understand math. The number the number 100 is a construct. Right. It is You a, live with it in your heart. And yes. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes things that are 100 are actually like 117. Sometimes the things that are 100 are like 102. Sure. Um, but it's loosely 100. Yeah. we 100 from us and then more from our guests is what we'll say. 100 from us and then everything from the guests is a, is a wonderful bonus. So, right. The Oscars do not have a category for best math. Rightfully so. So, Every yeah. Every year it goes to Aaron Brockovich. 
let's what let's... number do you need it's not a hundred uh uh-huh uh-huh i want to quote that scene but i don't want to get it wrong because lord knows there I'll, I'll get called on it because the people who can quote aaron brockovich from memory are are good and and loyal listeners to this at oscar buzz i, I recently saw i forget who posted it but i'm pretty sure it was new york city drag queen keisha carr Mm-hmm. Did it as a lip sync monologue, and it's right I, to do so. I, it's I right. I'll, it. I'll be interested to see if this upcoming season of Drag Race All Stars does another spoken word, and what it will be. Um, mm. Because the obviously they did the designing women thing last time, which was wonderful. But I, I feel like this is a place where they can really get creative. So, absolutely. All right. Anyway. Um, let's do the ground rules let's before do the we ground get back rules. into it. Sure, yes. Uh, give it to me in your best Annette Benning. Oh, God. Um, I don't know if I have an Annette Benning voice. I have to be very self-possessed and very... Um, uh, I, I tripped myself up on, on the intro joke because I forgot... What does she call Mark Ruffalo in Kids Are All Right? Like an interloper or something? I think an interloper, Yes. If anybody does a good Annette Benning impression, someone make us aware of it because that would be just It's uh, uh Peter Smith does one, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Peter yeah. Smith does do one. Um I'm so glad that you were right on the ball with that. Was that in um that was at a that was at a uh um oh what were the what was the live event that I went to? I literally was at it. Um Oh, whatever. I don't think I don't think so, honey. Live, whatever the I don't think so, honey. Live, uh, something. Uh, yes, um, tremendous impersonation. Peter Smith is fantastic. Okay, uh, yeah. So I'm not going to do that because I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm not nearly as good. Ground rules are only maximum one snub per category. So if per we year. choose. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, which, which is just to say that if we choose a snub from 2014 Best Actress, then that's the only snub from that category that year that we're going to choose. So if there are multiple people who we think should have been in a particular category, we had to make some choices that may come into play in this episode. So uh, keep that in mind. Once we select the snub that we want to talk about, we also have to choose which nominee who was nominated in that category that year will be replaced. Uh, that can be anybody in the category. It can be the winner in that category, House Down Boot, and uh, yes. we reserve the right to enact what Chris has called the Nicole Page Brooks rule which says that you can send them all home you can uh, choose to add your snub to the category and then send them all home everything Eventually will lead up they to, all gotta go home so send them all home everything will lead up to whether this is a non-ranked list we are this is not a, a ranking up until the very final choice where each of us with our final pick, we'll choose our choice for the biggest Oscar snub of all time. I also want to say, which we probably should have said up the top, we understand that the term snub comes with any number of like uh, quotation marks and and you know irony to it. We understand that the word snub is probably inaccurate when it comes to somebody who, for all we know, could have been two votes shy in sixth place. You know what I mean? A snub 
is often spoken of as an active um, rejection of someone's merit, which is not the case when it comes to voting. It's just somebody who did not make the top five vote getters in any category. And yet, it's a real handy term, and it's it's nice and punchy and and concise, and it gets across the point that <laughs> we're we're trying to make without having to use eight hundred qualifiers. So when we say snub, know that we mean. Somebody who didn't get nominated and don't make too big of a deal of it. Yes. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. People we've maybe done full episodes on, things that could still be episodes to come, but also providing us an opportunity to talk about movies that maybe got other nominations uh, that our listeners normally wouldn't be able to hear us talk about. Exactly. Exactly, Chris. Anything else you want to add to the ground rules or caveats or... Uh, anything like that we are thus far pushing in this mini series some episodes that are uh running close to three hours so uh let's just get into it let's get let's into it we are almost at the it. is it the summit the crest the you know the peak of yeah uh, yeah we're hitting the midpoint we are hitting uh, uh it's the hump day of the mini right. series. that's what it is it's and by that i mean lynn shelton's hump day right of course okay so shall we begin Yes, Joe, kick us off. Where are you taking us? What's okay? Well, I gotta come up with the metaphor for whatever this episode's theme will be. Obviously, you have heard us talk about the Polar Express and Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, um, 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 oh no, Chris is coming up with a, we'll, with a we'll metaphor. Come up with them. We'll come up with okay. one. Start right. us off. Maybe I'm doing something really horrible to you without being aware of it, but I have a show opening in two weeks. I'm really nervous about it. I'm seeing a new person, and I'm obviously anxious about you and Curtis liking him. You were involved with this horrible traumatic accident you're going on this crazy horseback riding trip with your father which oh sounds like God. a recipe for disaster to me and on top of everything else lisa ever since i told you about ramon you have been treating me like i'm insane okay so i'm gonna take us all on a trip to 2011 and the best supporting actress category my nominee to add to that field is the fantastic j smith cameron from little film called margaret we have Done an episode on Margaret. Shout out to our wonderful, wonderful friend Patrick Vale, who is currently uh, in London uh, playing Sexy Jed in Sexy Oklahoma, and we love him for that. Um, Margaret's an awesome movie. Margaret has a plethora of supporting actress contenders. Just narrowing this choice down to one supporting actress contender from Margaret was a challenge. No, no Braver disrespect. Than me because I probably would have just not picked one of them as an avoidance tactic. Absolutely no disrespect intended to the great Jeannie Berlin, the great Allison Janney. Um, uh, they are. Both phenomenal in that movie and both worthy. I mean, you could you could have a majority Margaret category for 2011 Sporting Actress if the Academy paid any attention to Margaret, which they did not. So I'm choosing J. Smith Cameron, who plays uh, Lisa's mother, Joan, in this movie, because it's a really difficult role to nail, right? This mother-daughter dynamic becomes so important. I think the Janny performance is so impactful in such a short amount of time. Like, it's it's incredible. And then the Jeannie Berlin performance is fireworks upon fireworks, right? Like, every single line reading is 
gold. And and every, it's just she gets such a platform to kind of like stunt on this girl, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, and then there's Jay Smith Cameron, who has to build this mother-daughter relationship that is very complicated, that has very much sort of like highs and lows, while also maintaining this character who is very much her own person, who is going through her own struggles. She's an actress. She's full of self-doubt. She's dating this guy, and she's not sure it's going to work out. And she's can't get through to her daughter, and that's a thing that could end up feeling very cliched, but she makes it feel very, very lived in and um, uh, real. She and Anna Paquin have a tremendous uh, rapport with each other, and maybe it's the uh, the fact that Succession is currently airing its season, and I'm in very... Although, Jeannie Berlin also uh, uh, killing it as Sid Peach on uh, Succession. <laughs> Sid Peach, we hope, you, we hope you hang on at ATN. You know the axe is coming for you, Sid. But, okay, um, I've, I've come around to thinking that Sid may be when, you know, when the final, you know, ashes settle, it you will think be she's the ashes and left. Sid that have survived. <laughs> she does have that uh, that feel to her, right? Where she's just like, "I'll I'll be fine," you know, smoking yeah. well, smoking a cigarette, and she'll it, be fine. I mean, it would be, I think, comedically genius because yeah. there's been so many episodes. While it's frustrating, but then while you take a step back and look at the big picture, that you see Jeannie Berlin will just show up in episodes to be in a boardroom and say nothing, and it's frustrating because it's like you're wasting Jeannie Berlin. She's in that first episode back. just. At the birthday party, like yeah. sitting in a room full of people, and it's just like, wow, Jeannie Berlin, cash that check, like, okay. Um, anyway. so excited to. Uh, we can't talk Succession. We can't no, a, we can't. spoil it for anyone. I don't no. know where you are, so you can't spoil it for me. I'm only an episode you, sir, ahead of were you. We're sitting on those first four episodes and didn't let a damn thing slip to me, and I would have killed you if you would oh. me. Oh, it was top priority that I wasn't letting anything slip. No, at this point, I'm only an episode ahead of, of the pace, so don't worry. Anyway, um, J. Smith Cameron, phenomenal actress, phenomenal performance in Margaret. As for who I boot, so the 2011 supporting actress, we've talked a lot about how neither one of doing. us... I know you are. I know you do. Um, we've talked a lot about how neither one of us really like the uh, top to bottom, the 2011 Oscar nominees very much. I think it's a very weak Oscar year. Uh, this is the year that Octavia Spencer wins for The Help. She is nominated against her co-star, Jessica Chastain, for The Help. Uh, Berenice Bijou for The Artist, Melissa McCarthy for Bridesmaids, which I think we have both said that while she wouldn't be our nominee from Bridesmaids, she's still very good. Uh, at least I have said that. I would nominate Rose Byrne for uh, yeah. that film. Uh, and then Janet McTeer for Albert Nobbs, which is a weirdo movie, but Janet McTeer is very good in it, I will say, and um, uh, provides maybe my favorite comedic highlight of that movie when she uh, you say this her... like it's a movie with so many comedic highlights. No, well, that's true. <laughs> of the many comedic highlights in Albert Knobs, no, uh, uh, Janet McTeer's character very I mean, proudly pulling of intentional uh, exposing uh, her breasts in that movie is very funny to me. Um, okay, yeah, this is an easy call. This is not the strongest supporting actress category of all time, and yet I, I'm agnostic about the artist. I genuinely don't understand 
what Berenice Bejo was doing in that movie to earn an Oscar nomination. She's not bad, but like, what, 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 Chris, <laughs> what's going on? What happened there? Am I being too harsh on Berenice Bejo? No, no. Berenice right. Bejo is fine. She'll do fine. She doesn't need my support. Right. She's got other people. I don't know. Um, yeah, get her out of there. Add some J. Smith Cameron. Honestly, this is a category. I'm not going to go full uh, Nicole Page Brooks because I do think, I particularly think Jessica Chastain is a hoot and a half in The Help. And uh, I do love Melissa McCarthy. No, that's a good that's a But good you, can, you can replace three-fifths of this category with people from Margaret, and I'd be happy with that. You know what I mean? Um, I, I do want to go through, I'm going to start because I haven't so far. I am going to go back and keep track of all of the nominees that we're booting and seeing if there are people we've booted more than once or movies we've booted more than once. And uh, maybe we'll create some type of boot hall of fame sure i know i've I've already steve madden hall of boots uh (laughs) and we'll see because i think i've booted the artist so far yes i also am just like whatever with that movie i've definitely booted charlie's theron twice which i feel like i'm gonna have to like do penance for at some point although i do stand by it um uh but yes so anyway what is your first selection i don't mean to keep you from getting to work or anything I just knew if I didn't start driving, I wasn't going to see you again. I didn't want that. That's all. Okay, so I also am keeping us in the supporting actress race. This is someone who I have very strong feelings about, and I have developed strong feel- stronger feelings about this performance as it sat with me and stayed with me and haunted me. Very excited for the year ahead. Uh, we're talking about Best Supporting Actress in 2016. None other than Lily Gladstone for Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women. Shocked. Shocked that you would make this selection. So shocking that I would do this. She actually did, for a very, very small movie that was released by IFC, and we all know that like IFC doesn't really have the funds to campaign all that often. Yeah. Um... Plus, you know, Academy Taste being what they are, a Kelly Reichardt movie has never been nominated for anything, even during the pandemic when First Cow was so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she won the Los Angeles Critics and then was showing up as like uh, runner ups elsewhere, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she plays a uh, farmhand named Jamie in uh, the American modern West who develops a kind of a. a a uh, queer unspoken longing to uh Kristen Stewart's player uh uh character who is a teacher in like a night school kind of for adults that is yeah. um hilariously like they're not there to learn whatever it is but then she goes to like a diner with her and then they make this connection and she goes to uh across the state to meet her and uh thinks that there's more of a connection than maybe there was or it's a one-sided thing you have this very heartbreaking scene where you can tell that lily gladstone is trying to uh you know make a connection and Kristen mm-hmm. Stewart's like, what, why are you here? This incredibly awkward thing. And then you have this silent scene where Jamie played by Lily Gladstone drives away and you just watch her face for several minutes. And you see with 
just the most minor uh uh facial expressions this whole tidal wave of feeling and understanding working yeah. through her um in a way that i think makes her an incredibly exciting performer and uh as we all know it is lily gladstone or bust for killers of the flower moon this year i think it will be very exciting to see you guys you listeners don't know you, you uh, listeners a potential front runner yeah you listeners don't know the experience of being friends with chris file and every time even tangentially that Killers of the Flower Moon is brought up or the Best Actress race at the Oscars is brought up or <laughs> like, how are you this morning? And For multiple and years, it's been like Lily Gladstone. Every actress, single time, it's go. just like, don't forget about Lily Gladstone. It's like, I literally just said what I had for breakfast. So yep, yep. Um, that's been the experience. <laughs> this text message from you um, about your bagel is... <laughs> Giving the vibe that you have forgotten that Lily Gladstone is going to be in a major contender. This why year. are you? Why are you forgetting about Lily Gladstone? What's going on? Um, yeah, Hi, so- Diva. It seems like you might be forgetting <laughs> about Lily Gladstone, Diva. All right. Uh, the 2016 nominees for Best Supporting Actress. A good lineup, as far as I remember. Uh, yes, a good lineup. Viola Davis wins for uh, Fences. It's also Naomi Harris in Moonlight, Nicole Kidman in Lion, Octavia Spencer for Hidden Figures, and Michelle Williams for Manchester by the Sea. By the Sea. By the Manchester by the Sea, Mr. Todd. Oh, I know you'd love it. Um, so this lineup, it is a good lineup. I do, I still stand by if Isla Davis had a run in lead because I would consider that a lead performance. I still Same. think she would have won. Um, and perhaps opening up for Naomi Harris, who does everything she does in that movie and filmed it all in three days. Um, oh, I think that's Michelle's Oscar win if Viola moves up to lead. I don't know. I mean, possibly, but I think. It, and maybe this is because, you know, she wasn't going to beat Viola Davis. But the way that season shook out, it didn't, you know. Sure. I don't know if she ever really got the, ever got more momentum than when people first saw that performance. Maybe. Maybe. Um, anyway. It's tough because yeah. Nicole Kidman in Lion, I think, is a performance we've somewhat talked about either in this miniseries or in recent episodes. Octavia Spencer in Hidden Figures, who I love Octavia Spencer. For me, the nomination from that movie, the Sporting Actress nomination, would have been Janelle Monet at that time. Sure. Um, but I think I'm going to boot Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I get it. My, I, I think I agree with that. Even though I love Nicole Kidman and I think it's a really good performance, this is just a very strong category. And... Um, I like. We everybody. all know I'm of the belief that Nicole Kidman's Oscar nominations are weird. Like that's they're true. Just not representative of her as a performer for the most part. Like, sure, I get that. Um, and it's no slight against line. We were talking about it in our Mary Magdalene episode. That's what it was. Yes, um, that's right. Of course, Garth Davis. It's no slight yes. against Lion. I don't think Lion is bad. And I, no, I, I, I think don't Lion's a good think movie. Anyone's bad in it. It's yeah. just yes. it's a weird nomination for Nicole Kidman. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, I, who am normally not sight unseen rooting for a performance or a movie in this type of way, am uh, all in up to my eyebrows um, LFG Lily Gladstone this year. Yeah, not bad. Read the book and you'll know why. 
ha- uh, won't, but I'll see the movie and uh, I'll find out a, then. It's not a very uh, long read. I know, but you know me. Okay. All right. Uh, you're taking us on a journey. I am taking us on a journey. A journey, perhaps on, one that never stops. A journey on the back of a dog dragon is is what sure that's how we're yeah. describing that creature. Yeah, um, I'm taking us back to the 1984 Academy Awards. Um, a nation had fallen in love with Amadeus. Farm wives were all over the best actress category. And in the realm of children's stories, uh, the children of America were scarred for life by any number of aspects of a little movie called The Neverending Story. Neverending Story is a weird, weird movie, I will say. Um, just in terms of there's darkness in it. All Half of the creatures looked uh, terrifying. Even the nice, friendly dog dragon also looks kind of terrifying. Mud um, cinema. The the performances by the children are all um I'm not gonna say bad, but like uh particular. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're all kind of shouted. Um and yet I watched that movie a billion times when I was a little kid. Uh in terms of an Oscar nomination, I'm going to the best original score category. Because whatever you may think of the never-ending story, if you've seen that movie and I mention the title immediately in your head you start hearing that that music by Giorgio Moroder and Klaus Doldinger uh there's there's of course the song but then the score sort of emanates from the song right where it's like da, 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 you know what i mean that whole yeah. um the the you know again the flight on the on the dog dragon like that whole scene is scored this very sort of like you know, uh, fantastical and and soaring. There's a lot of it. Sounds very 80s. It all sounds very synthy, um, but in this very particular way, it it is a time capsule of a score. If you listen to it, were you a were you a did were you exposed to the Neverending Story as a child? Are you kidding me? Uh, I was exposed to Neverending Story and Neverending Story Two. I never. There's another one that I've never seen. Neverending Story Two, which of course is like the Jonathan Brandis of it all, but it also yeah. like the my probably the urtex of me as a gay person, you know, staring into a TV and mentally just going into the Slay Queen headspace. Sure. Of Zaida, the villain of Neverending Story Two. I don't so remember like, Neverending Story Never 2 Story very 2. much. Yeah, you're you're um, I feel like that's the age gap between us that I'm a Neverending Story and you're a Neverending Story 2. Like that Uh Neverending Story I maybe had to age more into that because sure. it's so scary. It is. <laughs> it's terrifying. And um, like when that fucking horse, you think the horse is has drowned attacks. in the bog and then like the kids mourning him and then like he does Oh god, it's so traumatizing. Yeah. The nothing. The nothing exactly, but also like talk about like the name for uh like Gen Z alt band the nothing. Yes. But this was also a movie for soft boys. Like this was I I imagine 
really okay. imprinted on soft, soft little boys. Okay, both Never Ending Story and Never Ending Story 2 are soft boy cinema. Yeah. But also, Never Ending Story is like horny girl cinema. Because every <laughs> sure. young woman that sure. I knew through my childhood wanted to fuck Atreyu. Yeah, um, that makes like, sense. Full blown sexual awakening for so many women over Atreyu. That feels like the the perfect Venn diagram between like earliest childhood crush and burgeoning horse girl. Like like yes, you know what I mean. Listen, like the 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 fandom, the appeal of uh, Neverending Story is so wide ranging. It yeah. is. Uh, you know, horse girl, soft boy, horny girl, <laughs> um, goths. Um, yeah, it brings I'm, it brings people together. I'm kind of surprised that we haven't gotten uh a resurgence of like never ending story, kitschy like T-shirts or like you know what I mean like. Mm. You know what I mean? How like stores will will like do a shirt where it's like the Contra cheat code. You know what I mean? Like that kind right, of like right, right, right. like where is our never ending story? Uh, Did never ending retro? story ever take off on Tumblr? It seems like a very it feels Tumblr like it should movie, right? Um, I need you guys to at some point go to IMDb and look up Giorgio Moroder and look at the. What appears to be his IMDb photo appears to be an album cover of him with like a very Miami Vice jacket with a t-shirt that is like circuitry and wires. It's very much like I'm Giorgio Moroder. I am very 80s cool, but also possibly a robot. <laughs> Uh, it's it is the intersection of Miami Vice and Tron. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Nice work if you can get it. Georgia okay, Roder. Never Ending Story nominated for any Oscars because this is the thing I was going to. I ask don't believe you. it you was. You chose it for score. Yeah, and I could think of it for maybe a few other things, especially like art direction, visual effects, etc. I was going to say you could. Uh, I don't believe it got. It maybe got like a special visual effects award, but I don't oh, think it did. I don't think it was at, got any Oscar nominations, which is kind of interesting because I think it was considered. It did not get any. I think it was somewhat of a bomb. It's this weird, like throw all European countries in a blender type of movie. It does. It's like the ABBA of of movies, and that like it feels like it learned English phonetically. Like it's a movie that learned the English language. Uh, uh, phonetically or like by watching other things yeah the visual effects nominees that year were indiana jones and the temple of doom 2010 the the 2001 sequel and then ghostbusters and then art direction we'll get to the score stuff in a second i promise you uh art direction that year um was again 2010 but like stuff like amadeus and the cotton club and uh the passage to india and the natural and all this sort of stuff so um i don't think they were looking towards uh, oh, that was also the same year of, of David Lynch's Dune, which got at least a sound nomination. So Dune Dune and the NeverEnding Story in 1984 as a double feature would have been a real fucking time, let me tell uh, you. Let's maybe um, get some substances and do that. Uh, NeverEnding Story somewhat feels like Dune for children. Right. A little, a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You get you watch the Neverending Story, then you grow up, and you're you're in high school, and then you watch Dune. Um, that makes sense. So anyway, uh, Giorgio Moroder is a three time Oscar winner, so he kind of doesn't need my help in any way. Um, he was actually 
um, uh, had won the previous year to 1984 for original song for Flashdance, What a Feeling, uh, won the Oscar for original score for Midnight Express, and then was one of the songwriters, I imagine, wrote the music for Take My Breath Away, so that won original song for Top Gun. So uh, more Contributed for, so much to the culture. Yeah. More for Giorgio Moroder, I say yes, because this score is, to me, iconic. The nominees that year for original score were um, Maurice Jarre won for A Passage to India. Uh, John Williams nominated for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is one of those classic, like, this is, this is John Williams working in the same score, essentially, that he was nominated for previously. It's an iconic score. It's sort of like every time he's nominated for Star Wars. It's like, yes, you wrote a, a new theme for whatever, but like you're, it's still it's Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? It's another right, Indiana right. Jones score. Uh, Randy Newman for The Natural, which is a tremendous score and 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 not typically randy newman it doesn't you listen to it and it doesn't sound like you know what i mean like it doesn't have that sort of a sound to it but it doesn't come in with some random ill-placed song where he's like and now i'm going home exactly i'm so alone the natural is also The Natural is one of those movies where you can play a piece of that score as like a shorthand for like, you know, like what it is. And in this case, it's like hitting a home run, right? It's like like that. Anyway, uh, John Williams nominated again for The River, which is a movie where uh, Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek have their uh, farm washed away by a flooding river. And then Alex North for Under the Volcano, a movie I have not seen. Have you seen Under the Volcano? No. Okay. Have you seen The River? That's like one yeah. of those random '80s acting nominations that I want. To see. I got on a kick I of, of I got a kick of watching a bunch of '80s best actress nominees. So I watched The River. It's okay. Um, it's the one the, I'm going to boot. The, really, there is a river. It's the one I'm going to boot out of this category because, for one thing, John Williams doesn't need to in this category. Um, I haven't seen Temple of Doom in a while, so at the I it very well could have. Uh, you know, very important like additions to the score that it didn't have in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, sure, like, I, I sure. want uh, whatever. Um, I've seen the river. I, it's fine. It's deeply fine. The score did not make an impact on me whatsoever. Uh, John Williams doesn't need to. So, uh, I'm getting rid of the river. Anything else to say about that category or about the never-ending story or anything? Um, I think in terms of like the gay categorizations that people fall into of like twink, bear, cub, <laughs> otter, etc. Yeah. I identify as a childlike empress. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. All right. What do you have next for us, Chris? Well, sir, I don't think anybody here would deny that when you send uh, your chickens out in the morning from your barnyard, those chickens will return that evening to your barnyard, not your neighbor's barnyard. I think this is a prime example of the devil's chickens coming back home to roost. Okay. next, I have for us something that I feel very strongly about. I find surprising and annoying um, that didn't happen and is linked to when people talk about like snubs for nominations that didn't uh, achieve a win. This is one that people talk about a lot. I feel as strongly, if not more strong about this uh, movie being a best picture nominee. Yeah. Um, we're talking about 1992. Um, uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. 
which uh, obviously, you know, had a lot of heat around Denzel Washington's performance. He loses to Al Pacino getting his career nomination for Scent of a Woman. Yeah. Malcolm X is, I mean, I think over time, you know, it's accumulated uh, a much more legendary status. Obviously, we talked about it in a part one episode. We talked about Do the Right Thing being kind of considered the Spike Lee Oscar snub of Do the Right Thing not being a Best Picture nominee. I feel like Malcolm X is even more surprising because... Even with a controversial figure like Malcolm X at the center of it, it is, as far as a straightforward biopic is concerned, it's like maybe the greatest of all time. It's, it's uh, or among the greatest of all time in yeah. terms of like, it's not necessarily doing anything super outre. It's just, I think you get the full breadth of noteworthy person but a person's life and all of the different person people that they were throughout their life and the progression yeah. of a human identity and spirit in this movie that like you could t- piece apart this movie that it's like at this point it's like uh almost a musical you have that dance hall sequence that's amazing and yep. then you have the sequence where he eventually goes to africa and you have the like whole finale sequence that leads up to his assassination that's so just like mm-hmm. weighty and like you feel that movie in your bones yeah. but like it is fairly straightforward and the type of thing that the academy loves this is it's what i was also... gonna say is Go if ahead. spike lee had been treated like the auteur that he was from at this stage of his career, which by this point he should have been, because by this point he's already made Do the Right, right. Thing, then Malcolm X would have been his Welcome to the Club movie, right? Mm-hmm. You have made a movie in one of our preferred genres and have done it tremendously well with this sort of... He scaled up in terms of... Uh, his scope and his, you know, what the the toolbox that he's working with. And I mean, like, it's surprising when you talk about it in these terms, but it's like the Academy of 1992 passing over a masterpiece about and made by black people. Mm-hmm. Not surprising, but of course, incredibly frustrating. It's just also shocking that this movie is only nominated for Denzel Washington perform- performance and Ruth Carter's costumes, which yeah. is like absolutely both should have won yeah. but it's like there should you watch that movie and it's like mm-hmm. it should be nominated across the board yeah. <laughs> this it's it's a fucking masterpiece and because i put it in best picture it's also a lineup of movies that i it's it's not a great best picture year unforgiven wins there's yes. also the crying game a few good men howard's end and scent of a woman howard's end masterpiece love that movie don't love the rest of this. Yeah, this lineup. is a lineup where I like a lot of these movies more than you do. I think, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of hate Unforgiven. I yeah. understand why people like it. I find it a deeply unpleasant and uh, not good time at the movies. However, my boot is going to Scent of a Woman because sure. on what earth, you know, it's just, I don't know. Sent yeah. a woman when I see you, it's on site. Um, Again, it, it I, is full. It is fully like the preordained Al Pacino win. Yeah, it you know when someone's so much of a front runner, it can elevate a movie to sure 
a Best Picture nomination. And even, like, Martin Brest is Best Director nominated for that movie. It's... It was very popular. It was a very popular movie at the time. I don't hate Scent of a Woman. I think Scent of a Woman is fine. But, like, it's absolutely inferior to Malcolm X. Like, that's... Um, that's... Unquestionably unquestionable. inferior to yeah. it. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No-brainer. Yes. So, uh, we're saying... I'm saying, at least, that uh, Scent of a Woman is garbage. <laughs> Oh my god. Is that what that was? Is that what you were trying to find was a segue into this next? I was trying to find a segue. Oh my god. God bless you. Alright. Nineteen ninety nine best original song is considered generally to be a really, if not universally strong category, a fascinating category. I find it at least to be a fascinating category. Sure, I am nineteen ninety nine in general, right? You know, uh, Ballyhood year, fantastic turning point for cinema. So many great movies. The Oscars didn't reflect that super entirely. And the original song category reflects this, right? Where you have really, really wonderful songs like uh, Amy Mann's uh, song from Magnolia, Save Me, uh, the Randy Newman song, When She Loved Me, as performed by Sarah McLaughlin uh, in Toy Story 2. And then, of course, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut gets the nomination for Blame Canada, which everybody sort of freaked out about. It was like, oh my God, what a cool nomination. It's so, what are they going to say? How are they going to censor themselves? And blah, 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 um, While in the same category, you have my girl Diane Warren getting nominated for Music of My Heart for Music of the Heart, uh, as performed by Gloria Stefan and NSYNC. And then Phil Collins wins for You'll Be in My Heart from Tarzan, which is was sort of a... a forehead smacker when it happened and then it became kind of infamous because south park really like went in on phil collins <laughs> after the fact um i think there are improvements we can make to this category and the improvement that i'm going to make is i'm going to nominate the title song from the world is not enough as performed by garbage uh, as best original song of 1999 i think it is you're wild for this one show read i'm off. not i'm not i think this is a perfectly sensible nomination first of all It's the best of, with apologies to Adele, the best of the modern Bond themes. And when I say modern, I mean essentially like my adult lifetime, so Pierce Brosnan and and gone forward. How dare Um, you speak ill of Sheryl Crow's Kalanapin (laughs) ad, Tomorrow Never Dies. Listen, Adele's Skyfall is a good song. Tina Turner's Goldeneye is a really good song. This is... This... We as a gay community coming together to embrace in this modern era Tina Turner's Goldeneye as... It's a great song. Canon. Uh, yes. It's absolutely. a great song. The World Is Not Enough is even better. Uh, we could have had a moment where Shirley Manson in a stunning Versace dress uh, belts this very sleek and sexy tune on the Oscar stage. And we could have had that moment and we, uh, you know, we lost it. It's, it sounds 
perfectly like a Bond song. It's composed by uh, David Arnold, who is a, com- a composer who's done a lot of uh, Bond stuff and other things. Lyric Lyrics were by Don Black, who is a five-time Oscar nominee, who, for the weirdest stuff, the title song from True Grit, the title song from Ben, you know, the Michael Jackson song, Ben. He got nominated for a song from the Pink Panther Strikes Again. He's the Oscar winner for writing Born Free. <laughs> um but writes these, and again, it's this very sort of like traditional bond, right? It's all, the lyrics are just kind of meaningless. It's all just about, aren't I a very unknowable and cool, like, femme fatale, right? Doesn't this sound like some, like, profiles of naked ladies are dancing? Exactly. But they're also fire. Like- but, like... Again, Garbage is one of my very favorite bands of the 90s. Uh, definitional uh, band for me growing up. Uh, that, that debut album of theirs with the pink sort of feathered, pink feathered, uh, cover was burned in my brain. Um, Shirley Manson's vocal on this is so fucking good. It's so <laughs> sexy and sleek and, and powerful and, and, um, it's everything you want. It is absolutely flawless. It, is better than every nominee this year? Maybe. I don't know. I love that Amy Mann song from Magnolia, even though... I was going to say, you're not... I'm not going to let you get away No, the Amy... I mean, even though it's not even Amy Mann's best song from the Magnolia soundtrack, because, like, uh, I know why... she wrote for the movie, though. I know, right. Wise Up wasn't eligible because she didn't write it for the movie, but it's still, like, it's still weird to me that, like, what's your Oscar-nominated song from Magnolia and it's not Wise Up? Like, Wise Up is so important to that movie. Anyway. Um... I also really like When She Loved Me. Otherwise, um, I like this better than the South Park song. I like that the South Park song was nominated, but I like it better. But the one I'm going to get rid of, I'm house down bootsing. I'm getting rid of You'll Be In My Heart from Tarzan. Like, I no ill will towards Phil Collins. It's just not, you know. It's also weird that, like, this was the point where Disney stopped making musicals, but still decided they were going to have, you know, these Because they had to appeal soundtracks. to boys, because boys decided that it would be gay to watch someone sing in a movie. Right. And Even yet though, they... I think, like, the Rosie O'Donnell character sings in Tarzan. Sure. But she's a girl, so that's fine. Um, yeah. I, I, get what, I imagine that was a reaction to Hercules, maybe? That, Hercules like... is so fucking I know, but I imagine they were like, boys didn't like Hercules. I don't know. Who knows? Who the fuck knows? Right. Um, it's mediocre. I will get get mediocrity out of there. The world is not enough is excellence. And uh, we're adding excellence. There, I said it. Anything you want to add about the song or this category? Uh, no. All right. Chris, what do you have next? I feel like the lineup that I have for this episode is just um, me standing in my truth. I am who I am. You can't really expect me to not do the things that I'm going to do in uh, this part of this miniseries. Because we're talking about not maybe i also put this in here for the drama because it's we've talked many a times about how this is you know uncrackable uh one of our favorite races of all time and it's a performance that i think under no circumstance would it have ever made it into the oscars and yet i think it's maybe the greatest performance of my lifetime okay um we're talking about best actress in 2002 
Uh, my very favorite, Isabelle Huppert in The Piano Teacher. The a piano performance teacher. I thought about not including in this list simply because it's just like, uh, have you seen the film? Have you seen uh, what is happening in this film? And yet... Like I said, I think it is the greatest performance of my lifetime. She wins Can fully unanimously the year before. The movie does not get released stateside until um, early 2002. And then she makes kind of a close run for a major critics prize showing up in uh, like in the runners up for National Society, New York and Los Angeles. In the Best Actress Year, where Nicole Kidman wins for the hours, also our, our uh, beloved godmother Salma Hayek for Frida, Diane Lane in Unfaithful, Julianne Moore, Far From Heaven, and Renee Zellweger in Chicago. Uncrackable lineup. This I is also a category. inarguably the best Best Actress lineup we've ever had. And... I mean, I think my thing about this performance, which I know we've had arguments on Mike about how close we think that she might have been considering this lineup. I definitely think she was nowhere even in the top 10. Um, But like you watch that performance and it's just like a complete career defining performance for one of the greatest global stars alive. And to the point where the nomination that does eventually happen for her for L is like absolutely a more like it's, I'm not going to go so far as to say a sanitized version of this movie, but yeah. a much more palatable to the Academy version of this performance. I mean, it, I'm not going to say that it's the same thing because especially as my favorite actress, I could get really into the minutia of how these are two very different women and how she plays them very differently, blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. But, you know, if you get reductive about it in the way that the Academy sometimes can, it's in a similar vein. It's off-putting in a similar sure. way. Sure, yeah. This is an interesting category in that it's it's more... The wealth was spread more than maybe we remember it because by the time Nicole Kidman won, it was very obvious that Nicole Kidman was going to win. But Not like, quite because Renee Zellweger won SAG, and it it wasn't maybe a photo finish, but it was very close. Renee Zellweger had won SAG. She'd also won the Globe, which like in in musical or comedy, so she didn't have to beat Kidman or Julianne Moore. But then Julianne Moore and Diane Lane dominated the Critics Awards mm-hmm. uh, section of this year too. So, uh, and then Salma I do Hayek. Wonder if Julianne Moore wasn't splitting her own votes by getting nominated in both actress categories. Certainly. She could yeah. have made a run at it, but I, I mean, The Hours got like nine nominations yeah. on top of Plus Nicole Best Kidman's Picture. Moment. Yeah. yeah. I think once Nicole Kidman won the Golden Globe, people were like, oh, right, she's just going to win the Oscar. Like, that's yeah. sort of, uh, you're right about Zellweger making an end run, and yet even still, I feel like Kidman was, was a strong front runner. So, I don't envy you your choice of who to boot, although I think I know which way you're going. Maybe I put this in here partly just to, like, stir up some shit. Um, you know, it. everyone in this lineup, I think, is a deserving yeah. winner on top of being a deserving nominee. But, like, who am I putting in fifth place of this lineup? Yeah. Especially considering uh, this actress's Oscar trajectory... Uh, I'm going to boot Renee Zellweger. Yeah, that's the choice. She has two other Oscars. She's fine. Yeah. Two other Oscars that and under no circumstances was she ever going to lose. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that's the right choice. Ultimately, 
Um, in a year of strength on strength, she's the least strong. She has the most sort of, uh, I, I tend to be a defender of her performance in Chicago. I think a lot of people are like, she couldn't dance. She's not a great singer. Yeah. That's, she's playing someone who is, I mean, like, I know that some people also, I roll their, uh, I roll that justification, but like, I don't necessarily want to see a Roxy Hart who is the flawless singer and dancer. Just like, I don't want to see a, I don't always want to see a Sally Bowles who is the flawless singer and dancer because right. it doesn't make sense if they're a brilliant singer and dancer. It like it all falls apart. Um, that being said, I think that she's phenomenal in Chicago, but I also think that choosing her of this lineup, I don't always come away from Chicago talking about Renee Zellweger. Right. There's so much to right. talk about. Whereas, right. you know, the other ones, yes, I, don't necessarily think that's true. I agree. Uh, Chris, uh, look to the sky. Someone's parachuting in with <gasps> uh, a guest submission. <laughs> Who's para- If Joe, that's not a parachute. That That is a hot air balloon. No. no. We have an aeronaut arriving. Oh, no. Who's this very good aeronaut who's coming in with a, a snub for us to talk about? Oh, I think it's our very special guest from the... Uh, Family Stone and Never Let Me Go episodes. It's our good friend Tara walk Ariano. On the Moon. And our Walk on the Moon episode. Thank you for not letting me forget our Walk on wow, the Moon Wow, wow. Tara Ariano coming in in a full tie-dye Woodstock <laughs> hot air balloon. <laughs> Who could have expected? With her choice for the most notable Oscar snub of the last hundred asterisk years. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. Hello, this had Oscar buzz. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this exercise. I had a few uh, prospects, but I ultimately had to go with the most robbed person of 2022, which is Lashana Lynch, who absolutely should have gotten an Oscar nomination for her role as Izogi. In The Woman King, I mean, I just, when that movie was over, I thought there's absolutely no way that she won't. And I know it's wrong to give people (laughs) award nominations for most acting, but there truly is not a shade of human experience that she does not portray in this role. I mean, right from the start, she's so magnetic. She has the moment where they're parading back into town after a successful raid and, you know, a little boy on the side is being told by his dad, you know, you can't look at them. And she sees him covering his eyes because he really wants to look and he can't. And so she comes, she breaks the, the line and goes over and just leans down and smiles into his face. And he is delighted. It's such a great encapsulation of her character. And she gets to be obviously tough all of them are tough but she you know funny ironic she's the more relaxed backup to viola davis's titular character um she you know does action she does sweet stuff with you know the new recruits she has a spoiler impressive death scene that's extremely heroic i mean she's just She's the total package. She gives you everything that you want um, and is kind of, this may be controversial, maybe more interesting to watch even than Viola Davis is in this movie. And in terms of who I would remove from that class of supporting actress nominees, 
I mean, there's part of me that wants to say J.B. Lee Curtis, even though she won. But instead, I'm going to say Hong Chow because she is going to get nominated again. And it's such a bummer that she got nominated for The Whale, a movie I have not seen and will not see. And I don't think she was. I'm certain she wasn't the worst thing about it. It's still a drag that, um, you know, she was nominated for a, a Halo Award for that piece of shit. From what I hear, again didn't see it, won't see it. Um, so yeah, put in Lashana Lynch for The Woman King, take out Hong Shao for The Whale. This seems obvious to me. Thank you so much. Tara Ariano, you are a really good aeronaut. <laughs> um, I would have house down booted it. We we can move on from that. We don't have to... Uh, uh, I, l- I love this choice. It's a good choice. It's a very good choice. Good choice. Glad that this movie is on the list somewhere because it it still remains shocking to me. I wonder if it would have been more of a contender if the movie hadn't opened in September. A movie that makes no sense to open in September. Although, Although it made a ton of money by opening in September and it really did boom, not boomerang, springboarded off of the TIFF buzz that ended up being surprisingly, to me at least, surprisingly strong. I was going into TIFF being like, like, Woman King is opening in a week. Well, it had that bad trailer. And it had that bad trailer. And then all of a sudden, I saw it at a late screening. But the or the the premiere screening was rapturous. Everybody was like, this movie fucking rules. And I think that really helped it towards this like spurt in word of mouth. And then mm-hmm. the box office was so big. And I understand that it's hard to maintain bigger. no momentum. It could have been bigger, I guess, but like, I think it would have been bigger if it was in you know a time ta- release maybe. at a time when people were going to the movies, like a holiday. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Sometimes those things can get crowded out. Sometimes I don't know. There's yeah, you know. Regardless, I think it should have had enough momentum to get nominations. I'm excited to do an episode on that movie when the time comes because. Uh, Good movie. It's a good movie. All right. Uh, while um, Tara deboards the <laughs> hot air balloon, um, uh, yes. you, why don't you uh, take us on to uh, your next entry? Shania hates mayo, all right? And she can't eat chicken salad. That's no, no joke, right? <laughs> we gave it to her once. She threw up in the limo. Oh. The lady hates chicken salad. All right, this is a movie we have done an episode on. This is a performance I have raved about a lot. I don't care. I'm going to do it again. Uh, I'm talking about my beloved Jude Law in I Heart Huckabee's Best Supporting Actor of 2004. Probably my winner that year. My number one of anybody uh, supporting actors in 2004. And again, this is a movie that had multiple contenders i could have gone a few different ways in terms of performances in i heart huckabees including naomi watts including mark Wahlberg, who is not my favorite actor or person but is so fucking funny in i heart huckabees ultimately i'm going with jude law as brad stand in how am i not myself how am i not myself how am i not myself he gives you so much he's so he is in many ways would you say the most important character in terms of arc in that movie in terms of 100 percent, right where he goes from yes. this like very shallow and confident sort of uh bane of jason schwartzman's existence in this movie and then in 
what I would say is a sort of surprising turn kind of goes under the microscope and dismantles and has his sense of self dismantled by uh, Dustin Hoffman and Lily Tomlin. And um, the scene where they're in his office and they're playing for him the numerous times he told the Shania Twain chicken salad sandwich story. <laughs> and then I don't even like chicken salad. And then sort of challenge him on his, you know, little brother who's weird and likes geckos. And watching him sort of in that scene dismantle his personality is really, really tremendous while still being it's like it's good character work while it's also still being funny. And he's um, he goes through, he's got really good physical comedy in this. He's got really good, you know, line readings. He plays this like smarmy, self-obsessed, celebrity-obsessed person so well. Every time he talks about Shania is funny. Every single time he mentions, we got Shania, she's going to be there, she's, you know, whatever – um, the woman hates chicken salad. The way he says that line is so fucking good. Um, it's, again, it's a comedic performance. You know I love uh, nominating comedic performances when they were snubbed. And um, for as much as David O. Russell's a piece of shit, I still go back and watch I Heart Huckabees often. It's such a good movie. So uh, I know you love this movie and I know you love this performance because we did a whole episode. Love this on performance. It. I think it is the kind of like textbook for everything that Jude Law does incredibly well as a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say it's his best performance. So, a- And so if he got nominated, maybe we wouldn't have had that whole uh, ugly Chris Rock, uh, uh, Sean Penn. Uh, interestingly, of the people who struck Chris Rock at an Oscars, Sean Penn wasn't the guy like that's that's you know the upset of uh, of our lifetimes anyway um nominees 2004 for supporting actor morgan freeman won his career oscar for million dollar baby a good performance but not one you really think about too much anymore uh alan alda got the surprise nomination for the aviator thomas hayden church for sideways jamie fox for collateral and then clive owen for closer here's my conundrum um, I haven't seen The Aviator in a bit. I don't remember a ton about Alan Alda. He's in, like, two scenes, right? Maximum? Like, he's barely... Uh, I think it's a little bit more than that. He was kind of the late surge yeah. contender that year, because he gets, I think... He doesn't, like, show up at the Globe, but I think shows up at SAG and Does he? BAFTA? I don't know about that. Let me look that up. But there is this like late momentum where it feels like they kind of decided, oh, Alan Alda, not only can we get the nomination for this, but like he's had this incredibly long career that we can honor. Yeah. Hold and, on. you know, of substantive supporting male performances in that movie. And he had know. never been nominated, right? That was the thing. He got... I believe not. Passed over for Crimes and Misdemeanors after most people thought he would be nominated, and then they gave it to Landau instead. Um, let's see. Alan Alda He's was... so good in Marriage Story. He was nominated at BAFTA, and then he was not nominated individually at SAG. He was nominated as part of the ensemble. Um, but he was nominated at BAFTA. So that was kind of your your maybe canary in the coal mine about that. Anyway, it's 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 a good performance, but it's small. Um Jamie Foxx in Collateral is 
one of the more insulting uh, category fraud decisions of my lifetime. Sometimes category fraud is blatant and you think like, well, it's stupid that Haley Joel Osment isn't supporting for The Sixth Sense because he's clearly the lead character in this movie, but they have a weird thing about kids. And so we have all sort of decided to begrudgingly accept that that's what the Oscars do with kids. Um, With Collateral, I guess the thing is, I understand that Tom Cruise is a much bigger star and he's going to be your 1A on the call sheet, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's a it's a Tom Cruise movie. But Jamie Foxx is your main character. He is your protagonist. Protagonist. He is, he is the person who the movie is about. And But it's following in the mold that totally worked for um, Ethan Hawke in Training Day just same. a few years beforehand. Yeah. And, I mean, I do also think it's a factor of... He was so far out in front in the lead category that it's like, I just mentioned, you know, Al Pacino pulling Scent of a Woman up to a Best Picture nomination. Jamie Foxx was so strong, he pulls up a whole other performance that's not even a supporting nomination. Yeah. People are so excited about Jamie Foxx that year that they nominate him in supporting, too, for another movie. Um it's a dumb decision. It's a fine performance. It's not an Oscar-worthy performance even in lead. So I I I I don't think he's bad. I am maybe a little bit less of a collateral person than a lot of people in just in as much as I'm a little bit less of a Michael Mann person than than a lot of people. But uh it's a good movie, it's a good performance, it's not an Oscar-worthy performance, and it is not a supporting performance. So I am booting Jamie Foxx for collateral. Any further thoughts? And there we, and now we said it. Um, Chris, where are you going from here? Therese Balavet. It's lovely. And yours? Carol. Carol. All right, so, like I said, I might be a tad predictable this episode. But, uh, in researching this next snubby, I had forgotten how well of a run it had had. BAFTA nominee, Indie Spirit nominee, Critics' Choice nominee, Gotham nominee, Globe nominee for Best Picture of 2015. I had thought that, you know, it had seemed like more of an outside shot that it would get a Best Picture nomination. And that's not the case. Uh, We're talking about the great masterpiece, romantic cinema, queer cinema, Carol. Carol. The great beloved Carol. It's still so surprising that it wasn't nominated. It, there were only eight nominees that year. Like, what the fuck? Like, there was room. Obviously, Harvey Weinstein did way worse things in his life <laughs> this year. The effort was so placed on The Hateful Eight, which is a hideous and uh, deeply unpleasant and bad movie where it's like they're doing 70 millimeter screenings for the movie rolling out the full carpet for this like movie that seemingly very few people like even the Tarantino diehards don't really ride for this movie meanwhile Carol Carol was like the original Call Me By Your Name where people were complaining that it's been sitting in theaters for two months without expanding and people haven't seen it yeah um they kind of let it die they market it so horribly of course you know 
uh, iconic camp uh, TV spot where the movie is cut to look like it's a thriller. Um, yeah. Which worked you know, for the hours, so, uh, you know... You know, no, no I mean, shade. Uh, yeah. Queer cinema actressing's finest. Uh-huh. Uh, both of those right there. Uh, talking about the movie, though, I mean, what can you say about it that hasn't been said? As many rewatches as I've had, there are things that I've never noticed before, but also things that maybe I didn't notice or remember on the last rewatch that I catch on current rewatch and it just like sparks so much there's so much life in the movie in every crevice of it you know the whole frankenberg's culture the thing where like therese steps away and there's literally uh, another sales associate that steps up behind her (laughs) as if on a conveyor belt yeah the whole relationship between um Sally and Carol, that friendship that's so clearly, like, maybe there was a romance, but it didn't really ever work on that level. Uh, We mentioned it in Walking and Talking, that uh, shot of them walking down the stairs, uh, holding each other. Yes. Um, A perfect romance. I mean, romance cinema is all about glances, things that are unsaid. Yeah. And uh, this, of course, is contextualized through, you know, mid-century queer dynamics of, you know, uh, gay women hiding in plain sight and, you know, being able to benefit off of perhaps a misogyny that would not assume certain things about women. um, And yet also the homophobia exists, this weird kind of dichotomy. Of course, straight people didn't get any of that didn't get any of the subtlety of this movie um it's a masterpiece i even remember forever i i i I understand the thing about straight critics but i remember even like queer critics sort of came around the back end of carol and the idea that this movie is cold it's cold and it's unengaging and it's too you know mannered and and this is todd haynes's problem and yada 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 which was a to each their own, obviously, but like was not a perspective that I at all uh, understood. Yeah, I think those people are up a creek. I don't know how you watch this movie, and I mean, may I think some of it is there's there was a shifting dynamic in terms of the way people watch movies. Carol does require you to be an active audience member. Sure, you have to kind of be giving it your attention for all of these, you know, meaningful glances and the, you know, visual information that Todd Haynes is giving you throughout it. If you're going to be a passive viewer, it's not going to light a fire in you. But uh, that's a you problem, not a Todd Haynes As a problem. lazy person, though, I loved Carol. So, like, I, I'm representing <laughs> for, for lazy people. who Lazy people who love Carol is the new uh, weird gays who love to sell. Um <laughs> Anyway, talk about the best picture lineup that year. You know, not one that makes me super, super excited, even though there's movies that I love in there. Spotlight wins. The other nominees are The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, The Revenant, and Room. Yes. Uh, What did you think of this best picture lineup? I mean, it does sound like a cliche to be like highs and lows, but like... um, Maybe the highs for Class me... Class average is high, relatively. Mad know, Max for, brings think... it up. I love Spotlight. I really love Brooklyn. Um, I, I, lo- have pro- I have problems with Brooklyn, but I do love it as a movie. I like Room. 
I like Bridge of Spies okay. I am not a hater of The Martian. I thought The Martian was a really good fun time. And I've not revisited it then. It does. It's not a particularly sticky movie in my head, but I remember really, really enjoying myself and was kind of flummoxed at ha- the vitriol that that movie got uh, in its awards run. Um, and I'm up and down on The Big Short, and I was really down on The Revenant. Is, even though the revenant, the revenant looks amazing, I am up on more than other people. You're but an Inyara too. I don't want to say apologist. apologist. Some okay. somewhat, whereas yeah. like I do hate some of his movies, but the revenant is fine. Yeah. It is what it is, and I don't think like I may be more curious to revisit it than like interested sure. to revisit it. I feel like it's just one of those things that kind of fizzles out of your brain after you watch it, but it can be an exciting watch the first time you see it, maybe. My thing about Brooklyn is that after that return, when she leaves New York, it kind of loses me. It does. Because it loses it feels momentum. somewhat contrived in a way that like I don't ever feel Yeah. They I don't you just know how the movie's gonna end. And yeah. you you know that there's no romantic spark between her and Donald Gleason. Um Which is a which is an outrage. Like if Donald Gleason <laughs> wants to marry you, my my well, my darling dear, I, you do it. I think it, that's why I think it's a little contrived because like it yeah. should make sense, but it doesn't. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it's maybe the movie overplaying its hand sure. of like stacking the deck so that it it doesn't, does it stack. Know? That's Whereas a movie that stacks the deck. I wish that it felt yeah. more complicated. I get and that. I wish that you know, yeah, it felt like she was actually kind of losing something by returning to New York, and it, it, when I watched the movie, I kind of don't yeah um that being said obviously the big short is getting the boot i did not boot vice <laughs> when i somewhat wanted to uh-huh. uh in a previous episode i think the big short is it it is because people hate vice so much and because people hate don't look up so much i think this movie kind of dodges a lot of the same criticisms that in some ways i think are worse in the big short um I think The Big Short thinks that we are actively stupid as an audience in a way that pisses me off, and uh, I don't think it should be a Best Picture nominee. We've had this argument about The Big Short before. We don't really need to have it again. But yes, I, 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 um, your choice, your rules, and I get it. <laughs> uh, Harge, they're like, or uh, not Harge. <laughs> uh, we're not ugly people, Harge. I can't help you with that. Harold, they are what? Lesbians. Yes. All right. I almost wish we were butterflies and lived but three summer days. Three such days with you I could fill with more delight than 50 common years could ever contain. So 2009 was the first year that they expanded Best Picture to 10, but Best Director still stayed at 9, which gives maybe, uh, assuming that, you know trends continue it gives you a little bit of window into maybe the movies that were strongest in best uh picture that year i am choosing to add a little bit of class a little bit of beauty into the best director race of 2009 (laughs) by uh adding jane campion for bright star to the lineup um what a wonderful movie (laughs) what a gorgeous beautiful well-directed, sensitive, wonderfully performed movie that Bright Star is, um, comes at a very interesting time for Jane Campion, where she makes In the Cut 
And then Hollywood is like, no more. We are, we're done. And she was banished. Ed. Basically. And it takes her a while to come back with her next movie. And then she does with Bright Star. And then I think a lot of people were like, oh, a movie about poets. And it's quiet and sort of soft and and beautiful. And it sort of got lumped into this like, well, it's a art direction costume movie. We can't do an episode on it because it's a costume design nominee and rightly so. Um, It's more than that to me. It's my favorite Jane Campion movie. It is so um, beautiful, but it's beyond that. It's, it is, if not my favorite on-screen romance, then like my favorite romantic drama. You know what I mean? I tend mm-hmm. to appreciate romance when it comes with a com, uh, you know, a side of comedy. We talked about when Harry met Sally uh, in our previous episode, but the the depth of feeling that Bright Star gets from its aesthetics that it then complements these two performances by Abby Cornish and um, and Ben Wishaw are it's it's really really wonderful and Campion sort of moves those elements into and around and through each other, you know, the way that uh, Abby Cornish will be reading a letter with, you know, sort of butterflies literally flapping around her (laughs) or Keats will be sort of composing a poem while like lying in a tree of pink, you know, flowers or whatever. And it's just the way the movie uses color and the way the movie uses, you know, dialogue. And it's, uh, it's my favorite. It's my favorite of Jane Campion's. We, again, we can't do an episode on Bright Star, but, um, I imagine you like this movie as much as I do. Oh, of course. Um, love that it's on this list. Uh, quintessential Joe Reed pick. Yeah. I also think not unlike Carol, that it's like the people that don't get this movie are the same people that don't get Carol because sure. it's it's a lot of the same type of thing, you know, where it's like if you're not on, it's wavelength. If you're not being an active viewer to it, it's maybe going the emotional power of this movie is maybe going to miss you. Yeah. Um Paul Schneider's performance is oh, spectacular. So as good. Well. Yeah. Um yeah. What is his line? Who is like not full villain, but like for the efforts of the story is the villain. And um, but he has the most what, emotional line in the movie, I think, or one of them at least, when he says, "I failed, John Keats," yeah. um, and it's so sad. And um, oh gosh! Spoiler alert: uh, John Keats died. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, uh, you know, however long ago, wispy tubercular thing, yeah. Um, one thing I remember because it wasn't, it didn't get this, you know, hugely heralded release, which, you know, for the return of Jane Campion should have, it was released by this very, very short lived, uh, distribution house called Apparition. Right. They also got a costume nomination for the young Victoria mm-hmm. or win, 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 I think for the young Victoria. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, but it didn't last very long. Yeah. It lasted for like a year, less than 10 movies. Good movie. All right, so the nominees that year for Best Director, that was the year that Barbara Streisand finally was able to bestow 
the honor of the first ever woman best director uh, onto Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. She defeated her ex-husband, James Cameron, for Avatar, Quentin Tarantino for Inglorious Bastards, Lee Daniels for Precious, based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire, and Jason Reitman for Up in the Air. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know, listeners, and also Chris... That you're thinking, here's where Joe is going to be petty and is going to stick it to James Cameron for Avatar for all of those people who were so annoying about Avatar and, uh, uh, you know, retribution for all my uh, years of annoyance. Well, you know what? I'm not gonna when I that. greet Joe with, how is your baby? <laughs> and he says, my baby is strong. Uh, his baby that he's referring to is his hatred for the Avatar movies. Uh, here's the thing. I didn't hate the second Avatar. I still think it was wildly overrated, but I did not hate the second Avatar. I was often flummoxed by the second Avatar, but I didn't hate it. Um, I don't like the first Avatar, but here's the other thing. is I don't think Jason Reitman should be a nominee for Up in the Air. I know this is like hindsight and whatever, and this is like post Ghostbusters remake for Jason Reitman, and and you know I'm I'm annoyed with him for that and yada yada. Um, I think Up in the Air is a okay movie that whose whose virtues are not really in the direction of it. You know what I mean? Um, are in the performances and. Are in the performances. You know what I mean? Like it's a well performed movie with a good cast and I respect the um inclusion of those um exit interviews in the movie. Yes. However, I think the way that they are assembled into the movie is a little clumsy. Yeah. Plus, yes. Plus, it just, I respect the choice, not the execution. Plus, I think in general, just this idea of like the most shallow man in America who only cares about frequent flyer miles, and he, you know, um, you know, he would be happiest in the world where he's, you know, getting his rewards points and flying everywhere, and yada yada yada, is a little pat. Um, and you know, it doesn't understand that the world around him, people are losing their jobs. It's like it's a little pat. Um. It's not a bad movie. It's actually a pretty strong best director uh, field, uh, I think, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And he's the least of it. And I think Campion slots in a lot better. And all of a sudden then, you know, maybe then the whole story is in Catherine Bigelow being the only woman and yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, uh, it's a little bit more of a holistic category with Jane Campion in there. So, yes, that's the way I would go. So there, Avatar people. Give me a fucking break from now on. Okay. I see you, Joe. <laughs> Chris, where are you going? There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony. Greed. Sloth. Wrath. Pride. Lust. And envy. Seven. Okay, so we all know I am an advocate for more gross nominees at the Oscars. I, lo- <laughs> I think, you know... Uh, we've talked about it in visual effects. We've talked about it in makeup, even somewhat in costume. That like I want to see like gore and gross shit nominated because like it's such a you know it's a visceral thing as a viewer. Cronenbergian that you are, yeah, yeah, yeah. This next one I think actually extends to best art direction. In 1995, I'm talking about Arthur Max's work on the motion picture Seven. Yeah. Seven gets an editing nomination. 
Seven is definitely... Seven, weirdly, we talk about almost not at all when we talk about David Fincher anymore. And I think it's because, you know, people probably, you know, got it all out in the 90s over their obsession over Seven, and now we've just simply moved on and there's more to talk about in in Fincher's filmography. However, I think as far as the set decoration, the art direction work in this movie is so essential to our yeah. uh experience of terror in this movie yeah. not even just you know the sets of some of these sins or the set of John Doe's home um but just like how awful the streets of Los Angeles look in this movie yeah the real sense of world building is kind of off the fucking charts in this movie but not the type of thing that you know, the next year they would go and nominate William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, rightfully so. Yeah. And it's like, maybe it's just crucifix imagery that makes me think of those two <laughs> movies. But for, uh, I don't know, the the actual individual set pieces in this movie are so much of what turns our skin in this movie, so much of what, like, you hear about people talking. Uh, I remember when this movie came out, people vomited from this movie. It's just so intense, and there's so much detail in all of it. Yes. Like, it's kind of unfathomable. You wouldn't uh, recognize the art direction for this movie. The task that is set before Arthur Max in this movie to assemble these different crime scenes right almost requires him to step into the shoes of john doe right Mm -hmm. and because so much of what john doe is doing is assembling these crime scenes for maximum uh shock value for the police to observe and for the spectacle of it all to to you know uh impress upon the public and and whatnot and that's essentially what Arthur Max has to do is he's the one who's, you know, tasked with getting the Christmas tree air fresheners, you know, hanging from the, like that, that moment in that scene. Assembling all of those John Doe journals that were all filled with uh, gobbledygook right. uh, rantings and such. Right. But- the, the congealed bowl of soup and whatnot. And like, uh, just, oh God, um, all of I these think- horrifying things. Well, especially early in Fincher's career, it feels like all of that just gets credited to Fincher. Sure. And not the craftspeople that he's working with. Yeah. And I think that's some of what is at play here. Sure. Um I think I still think it's one of Fincher's most impressive movies. It's a movie that I that I revisit more often than you'd think for a movie that is as off-putting in many ways as seven can be but i think it's just a tremendously made movie and the aesthetics of it were so highly praised at the time i remember Mm -hmm. roger ebert specifically talking about this you know city where it never stops raining and the and you know just the feel of it that the the city feels very tactile and um yeah uh tremendous uh, arthur max i should also say i just looked up his uh awards tab on imdb is a three-time oscar nominee uh for gladiator and american gangster and the martian so and like seven blows all of those out of i the agree water, as far as i'm concerned yeah. with the work. seven just a movie that if you haven't watched it in a while definitely revisit because i do think it hits even harder if you haven't seen it in a few years yes. because it's just like fuck, this movie still does not miss. And I think, you know, once we've gotten outside of the immediate shock of the movie in the 90s when it was released of all of the violence in it, and, like, 
of course, it's one of those movies where you don't really see any act of violence on screen, but it, uh, you know, taps into your subconscious in a way that it's like violence you as a human being are afraid of. Yeah. Like you have a natural phobia for that. It's like, yeah, it's so visceral. It makes you think you've seen that violence. Um, yeah. Seven hits really hard if you haven't watched it recently. Yeah. Agreed. So who are you booting? Oh, yeah. The <laughs> nominations. Restoration. Completely forgotten costume drama. Restoration. Yes. Wins uh, the art direction category. Also nominated are Apollo 13, Babe, A Little Princess, and Richard the Third. Richard the Third, uh, the uh, Ian McKellen modern updating, uh, right? Didn't they move that to like World War II or something like that? Wasn't that the Yeah, deal? it's like uh, v- vaguely Mussolini Nazism right. type of right. uh, Good movie. Like, I like that movie. Cool movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, because of the like fourth wall break that, mm. you know, he's doing these soliloquies directly to the camera. Sometimes it doesn't always work and mm-hmm. it makes it kind of a dated movie, sure. but otherwise pretty cool movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to house down boot restoration. My apologies to restoration. I just don't see myself giving the boot to any of the other ones. I think especially Apollo 13 is really incredible in recreating all of those NASA spaces and the spaceship, etc. Um, restoration is one of those movies that like fully won multiple Oscars, and yet it feels like it's we should do an episode on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where because it's just it's so it's so forgotten, even though it won again uh, multiple Oscars. It's right, kind of amazing. Right. Yeah. No, sir, did I bite my thumb? You suck, but I bite my thumb, sir. Do you quarrel, sir? Quarrel, sir? No, sir. But if you do, sir, for you, I serve. It's going to for my next trick, ladies and gentlemen, I am taking us to a movie that you just mentioned, in fact. Um, yeah, sorry for uh, kind of stumbling into accidentally setting yeah, this up for you. Yeah, uh, the very next year after Seven, there's a little movie called William Shakespeare's Romeo Plus Juliet, directed by Baz Luhrmann. Um, one of my favorite movies of the 90s, one of uh, my beloveds, and... There were a lot of directions I could have gone with this, right? Obviously, best director for Baz Luhrmann is on the table. Um, in many ways, it's it's still my favorite of his movies. Like, I don't think I, he's made anything since that I love more, even though um, I'm generally a fan. I liked Elvis a lot. I love Moulin Rouge. Um, but Romeo and Juliet is the tits for me. Like, it is so, <laughs> so much fun. Um, it was nominated for, what did you say? Art direction? Art direction. Was that it? Was that its only nomination? Uh, I do believe, but I'll double check. Thanks. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was just the one. Um, deserved much more than that. I am giving it best film editing for the year 1996. Uh, Jill Bilcock is the editor. She would be nominated for Moulin Rouge, uh, several years later. Um, you could have. I could also done costumes. You know what I mean. I could have also done makeup. But the editing in Director, this movie, yeah, the editing in this movie is it's very showy, right? It's very much apparent, right? These quick cuts, these music video style uh, scenes, and yet that's the showy part about it, right? The the scenes where the the you know the fight with the guns that are called swords at the gas station or whatever, and you know the. Um, 
the cut to John Leguizamo and his gold teeth and whatever, gold tooth. And um, and yet within this same movie, you get a scene as impeccably edited as the fish tank uh, kissing you mm-hmm. scene where the Desri song is playing and they first see each other. And that is a masterpiece scene of art direction, which was nominated, the colors and the it's cinematography and it's directing and it's acting the way these two faces sort of peer at each other. But it's also editing in that it is edited in time with the music, but also as this like dance between them, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. face and face. And it's that that little masterpiece of a scene, I've talked a lot about how that scene is maybe one of my favorite just scenes in all movies. Like it could exist as a short film. It's so good. Um, in this same movie that has, again, these music video cuts and these, you know, fast action and these very kind of jarring modern um, in-your-face editing techniques is an it's an editor who knows what this movie requires. And it's not just excess, even though this movie has a lot of excess, it's using that excess to then set up these other moments that can exist on their own. And um, it's, it's such good work. It's, I don't know. I know you love this movie too. Um, Absolutely. So the nominees this year, 1996, this was of course the big, Miramax Indie uh, Revolution. The English Patient wins for Best Editing, which I know a lot of people (laughs) will laugh at because anytime a super long movie wins for Best Editing, everybody is like, it could have used a lot more editing, right? Um, Evita, Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Shine. Now, you've talked about assembling a list of movies that have gotten the boot from us multiple times. And I have already booted Shine from the screenplay category for uh, Walking and Talking. Here's the other thing I want to talk to you about, though. It has been a while since I've seen Evita. Evita does feel the bloat a little bit, right? Like, I mean, it's an ocean liner of a musical. Right. But... There are some really incredible montage sequences there that I that's think what I'm sort of remembering really, really well, right? And I think some of the numbers, um, I really like Buenos Aires in the movie. Like, I mm-hmm. I really think it's a energetic and fun, uh, you know, number. I think some of the other stuff feels like it's edited a little snoozily to me, and this is why I'm at least flipping a coin maybe between Evita and Shine. I think Shine does have some energy to it, especially the, you know, the piano scenes with David Helfcott and stuff like that. Um, I don't want to call the, you know, call upon the the bad karma of booting a, a Madonna movie from a category. <laughs> They'll find you. They will find you. They will find me. But I think that's what I'm doing. I think I'm 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 booting Evita from this. And wow. are you just afraid to boot Shine twice? Like I'm not are afraid, you afraid the to Shine <laughs> stands are going to come for you. No, I maybe feel a little bit bad about picking on a movie that I think is ultimately fine, but I also do feel like that I think the editing is I think it's zippy. I think there's some zippy editing to Shine in those pieces. There's scenes. a there it's like more big picture to like it's structuring this kind of back and forth time. Yeah. Jump. Yeah. Not time jump, but like you know yeah this kind of nesting doll right. approach yeah so again um 
I don't know, come at me, Alan Parker stands. Um, <laughs> I'm, I am booting Evita. Where are you going next? I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. So I'm taking us to a sad story, but one that I think kind of had to be included. Um, not even approaching it from the category standpoint, but approaching it from this actor. Um, obviously, John Cazale's story is a tragic one. Um, dying somewhat at the beginning of his career, but um, his you know work in film, as short as it was, yeah. <laughs> yielded nothing but best picture nominees yeah um so like suck on that leo dicaprio (laughs) um obviously you know he was meryl's partner originally she nursed him through his death yeah um and i feel like you know it it's just one of those kind of injustices not only that his life was so short but that he never got to be uh an oscar nominee like he absolutely certainly would have been he would be an oscar winner um just because in that short time you know all of his work is incredible and he's in movies like obviously the first two godfathers dog day afternoon the deer hunter yeah um so I kind of struggled with, okay, well, which one do I want to give John Cazale? Um, he's Globe-nominated for Dog Day Afternoon, but the one I decided, I just went with his most iconic one, which is The Godfather Part Two for yeah. Fredo. It's the right and, call. I mean, it's just... Having recently watched The Godfather Part Two, it's interesting how the movie kind of forgets Fredo for a certain section. And I think one of the things that makes Fredo so iconic and so uh, memorable and so tragic is that performance. And yeah. I think, you know, Godfather Part Two on my recent rewatch, you know, it's it's interesting because it's very different from the first one. But I do think the thing that kind of grounds it emotionally is the betrayal and oh, the yeah. heartbreak of Fredo. So oh, yeah. I'm going that way with 1974. However, Godfather Part 2 already has three supporting actor nominations. Both Godfather, both t- the first two Godfather movies each had three supporting actor nominations. Erroneously putting Pacino in yeah. supporting, which yes. is yeah. bug nuts. Um, De Niro wins uh, for playing the young Don Vito. Fred Astaire for The Towering Inferno, Jeff Bridges for Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which I haven't seen, but I have heard is... Is that one of those movies like Harry and Tonto and Wendy and Lucy where one of the characters in the title is an animal? Uh, No, no, because I believe the other one is Clint Eastwood. Oh, so it's two people. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yes, yes. Clearly, I also have not seen Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. For a second, I thought you were going to speak ill of... uh, Harry and Tonto. I know you I, love and Harry and Tonto. Speaking of really, 1974. Really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other two nominees are Michael V. Gazzo and Lee Strasberg for The Godfather Part Two. All the Godfather performances are great. So am I saying I'm going to give it four supporting Whoa. actor nominations? Um, I think I am, and I'm booting Fred Astaire. That nomina- I'm surprised. Like, okay, it's totally Helen Hayes and airport. Oh, yeah, type sure, of, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's just like here. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who like that Helen Hayes performance, but Fred. I mean, it's just like here's an 
old here's a old Hollywood performer in this big giant blockbuster, The Towering Inferno, being a Best Picture nominee. I guess. Um, I was totally prepared for you to to boot Michael V. Gatso, um, even though I think he is wonderful in that movie. But oh, like, he's tremendous in the movie. Like, I really did not give much credence, especially Lee Strasberg. If I'm being honest, Strasberg's probably, terrifying. Yeah, I'm probably giving Strasberg the fucking win. Yeah, man, well, over De Niro. All right, all um, right. I have a sense I would be booting Bridges if I'd seen the movie because I'd heard enough about it as a movie of blatant homophobia, but. I, I don't know if I'm I'm with you that I'm not booting things I haven't yeah. seen. Uh, Chris at his most Stephanie Germanata in giving Lee Strasberg the win for uh, Godfather <laughs> Part Two. If Just she could wait, give Stella Adler, will be uh, nominated with Circle in the Square. <laughs> um, Stella Meisner is coming up. Oh, fantastic! All right, great movie though, Part Two. Oh I my mean, God. John Cazale, what a fucking I know, legend. what a career, what a career. I was almost even tempted to put in the Deer Hunter because in the Deer Hunter, he brings this totally other energy and like a very different performance from. Uh, the Dog Day Afternoon is a very different performance yeah. from his other ones too. It's like it's interesting yeah. the amount of range that he shows in just these supporting roles. It's not only all Best Picture nominees, also it's like all legitimately great Best Picture nominees and winners. You know what I mean? It's like um, it's they're all. It's not like there there's empty calories there. They're all great movies and great performances. Yeah. yeah. We lost so much. I mean, just like talking about River Phoenix at the top of this miniseries, just a performer that we lost so much by not, you know, having them around for more movies and more performances. Yeah, that's true. Shall I go next? You shall. Mom, is that you? No, it's me. Yara? Yeah. Don't open the door. See? Everything's okay. I'm taking this to 2015, uh, the best cinematography category of 2015, which we just, what did we just do? Oh, Carol for best picture in 2015. So, uh, um, different category, cinematography, uh, for this year, I am picking a movie that was not ever a real contender, which is too bad because, um, I'm going to chalk it up to, uh, uh, other than many things, the genre snobbery. But I am nominating the tremendous horror movie It Follows for Best Cinematography in 2015 for the work of Mike Giolakis, cinematographer for It Follows. He is also, later on, did the cinematography for Us, a movie we covered on this podcast, and for a bunch of recent M. Night Shyamalan movies, Split and Glass and Old. Um, so he is the, he is the cinematographer that took us to the beach that makes you old and, uh, deserves our respect for that. Um, wow. And also in It Follows, there's a sex scene in a mid-sized sedan. Whoa. <gasps> Actually, I think that's a pretty big Cadillac or something <laughs> like that, but you get the reference. We do get the reference. Um, it follows is terrifying. It follows is one of my favorite horror movies of the last uh, uh, twenty years, and it's so well filmed. And it's one of those movies where it's just like it's. There are certain horror movies that you respect, and then there are certain horror movies that you feel in your bones, and sometimes you get both. And it follows is definitely a movie that is both. The filmmaking is really tremendous. I've talked before about one of my favorite things in horror and one of the things that terrifies me the most is 
a steady long shot where you see something coming and <laughs> and ma- the characters don't necessarily see it coming and you can and and that's it follows like the scene where the old lady the girls in class you are an old lady the girls in class and out the window is this old woman who is just sort of steadily walking straight towards her and you don't realize which person you're supposed to be focusing on at first right and it's like and it's and then the camera finally you know cuts to you know interior and then it's you know this lady sort of like coming dead on and those are you know decisions right your decision is to sort of like park the camera or whatever but there are other ones where the camera's moving or the setups are you know, less static and it's, you know, a lot of it is camera placement, which obviously just uh, in uh, in tandem with the director, David Robert Mitchell. And um, it's so, a lot of the times, at least for me, I don't know if you have this problem, Chris, you're probably better at this than I am, differentiating what is cinematography and what is directing and what accomplishment to credit to who is tough, right? Because a lot of these things are decisions versus techniques. A lot of cinematography is things like lighting and a lot of directing is overview, right? You know what I mean? Like the these decisions What's are ultimately the story right. These decisions the are coming down to, you know, from the director. And sometimes when you see a movie and it's like that movie looks so good, cinematography triumph and oftentimes that is the case but uh, i at least sometimes have trouble differentiating but i think the thing with it follows is the the shots themselves the quality of the you know the way that these images are are shot and are moving toward us enhances my experience of being absolutely terrified in this movie and Mm -hmm. there are too many shots and moments to you know to limit but like anything where this even the the last scene right where they're walking down the sidewalk and anytime you see anything else in that frame you're supposed to you've been trained to you know lock on it right at this point and so anything can be can be terrifying and um oh I love this movie. I watch this movie so, so often. And every time I do, there's something, you know, new that that jumps out to me. And a lot of it is visual. So I like this movie a lot, too. I like that you uh, have this on your list to call it out. There's I mean, we think about what is most, you know, talked about or memorable. of The movie is some of these slow static shots where something's going on like you're talking about. But there is actually a lot of visual variety in this movie. Yes. That, you know, yes. Made it a more one of the more distinctive horror movies of the past decade or so. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are just actual, just plain flat out triumphs of lighting work in this movie. I think especially of that horrifying shot that is just like, I remember the experience of seeing it in a theater with like three other people, but we all were like, was the shot where the super tall guy just very quickly emerges out of the dark. Yes. And, uh, just uh, uh, I know. Um, 
I watched this movie. I mentioned this before. I watched this movie with friend of the podcast, Nick Davis, at Toronto in the very back row of one of the smaller TIFF theaters. And we were both just sort of like gripping the common armrest between us and sort of like jostling for position. Um, oh, Nick Davis, we miss you. Ah, uh, what a fun time that was. Uh, never forget it. What a good, what a good screening. Okay, so the nominees that year, 2015 Best Cinematography. Uh, this is Emmanuel Lebeski's third Oscar in a row for Best Cinematography. He had won previously for Gravity and then Birdman, and uh, The Revenant made it three. Uh, other nominees were Ed Lockman for Carol, who actually won the Independent Spirit Award that year, which It Follows was nominated for. That was the one cinematography award that uh, It Follows got nominated for. Ed Lockman very deservedly wins for Carol. Um, Robert Richardson for The Hateful Eight, John Seal for Mad Max Fury Road, and then Roger Deakins for Sicario. This is a very talented lineup of cinematographers, just irrespective of the films. Like Lubetsky, Lachman, Richardson, Seal, Deakins, like that is, uh, that's a Hall of Fame lineup right there. Um, And the only reason I'm booting one of them is because of the actual specific movie. You mentioned it before when you were talking about uh, Best Picture, even though it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, uh, is The Hateful Eight. I don't think it's a very good movie. And Bye. Who gives a fuck? I like Robert Richardson a lot as a cinematographer. He did the cinematography for JFK, so he is in my Hall of Fame forever. Um, but this one particular, I don't need it. Uh, it follows is much better. I think you, that, it's not bad work from Richardson too. No. I think that movie got so much more credibility simply by the contributions sure. of Robert Richardson and Ennio Morricone. Yep, they do so much to elevate that Agreed. piece of crap. Agreed. Regardless, um, I could also, I guess, boot Deacons for Sicario, but I like Sicario enough, and I like. Uh, I think for as much as. Certain aspects of that movie don't entirely work. There, the camera work in the, especially some of those action scenes are really, really good. And um, yeah, so booting Hateful Eight, adding It Follows, I think then you have a category of four legends and one real up and coming exciting cinematographer in Mike Giolakis. So uh, I'm happy with that. Chris, what do you have next? A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat. So, uh, keeping us somewhat in a somber tone, but hopefully lifting us out, I'm talking about another uh, performer who historic, who legendarily was never nominated for an Oscar and left us far too soon. Obviously, uh, uh, recently a heated debate around this performer because (laughs) of a certain movie that will go nameless because it is a piece of shit uh we're talking about none other than the legend marilyn monroe um and i also this is a movie i'm putting her in here for a movie that i also wanted to pull out to no uh oscar nominations whatsoever for this movie one of my favorite movies of all time, I would probably argue the funniest movie of all time, and one of her most iconic, uh, it's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Best Actress of 1953. Very good. Um, obviously, the, you know, first thought 
as far as the culture is concerned, is the Diamond Star Girl's best friend number uh, with the pink dress, etc. Yeah. But, you know, that's kind of the one of the 11 o'clock numbers of the movie. I would also... It feels rude to... Rude and incorrect to just mention Marilyn Monroe here. If I could have two, I would also be putting Jane Russell in there because I do love, I fucking adore Jane Russell in this movie. But Marilyn Monroe is like line for line, constantly just like knocking the shit down. Everything out of her mouth is so goddamn funny. As a physical comedian, she is incredible as well. And it's just like, it's, you know, some people have their own pet favorites of her work, but I think it's the quintessential Marilyn Monroe performance in terms of how outright intelligently funny she could be and just this incredible screen persona. And, you know, when we talk about comedic performances that have been nominated for Oscars, it's not that different than, you know... Uh, something like uh, Joan Cusack for a working girl. It's just she gets to do it for the whole run of the movie. And then do uh, musical sequences that, you know, are imprinted on, you know, film history. Yeah. So who was nominated instead? Uh, this is the year Audrey Hepburn wins for Roman Holiday. Nominees are also Leslie Caron for Lily, Ava Gardner, her only nomination for Mogambo, Deborah Carr for From Here to Eternity, and Maggie McNamara for The Moon is Blue. Have you seen any of these movies? I'm sure you've seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, right? I've not seen any of these movies, including <gasps> Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I'm no. going to be so fucking rude to you until you watch <laughs> Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Okay. Just like... You know, movies that get cre- there's so many movies that get credited for like gut buster a minute laugh ratios, yeah. and Gentlemen for Prefer Blondes is absolutely up there with those movies. All right, it's already on the um, list. I'll bump it up the list. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Put it at the top of your list. Uh, from this lineup, you know. The Ava Gardner Magambo nomination and Grace Kelly is also nominated and supporting for that movie is wild. It's just this like sort of relationship drama with Clark Gable where there's like multiple couples happening, but they're on a safari expedition. Okay. It's so weird. So weird. <laughs> I am, of course, not taking. Uh, it's a John Ford movie. Uh-huh. I'm not taking Ava Gardner's one I was gonna say. nomination yeah. away. And she is fabulous in the movie. It's a lot of just like really exquisite, sure. you know, meaningful glances sure. and, uh, you know, just savoring syllables. Um, okay. Lily is one of the stupidest fucking things <laughs> I have ever seen. What a weird movie. Leslie Caron is, like, supposed to be, like, 14 or something, and she is basically gaslit into falling in love with a puppeteer in a circus. Okay. There's these weird fantasy musical sequences, which is, like, I shouldn't hate the movie because, like, go off, love it. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's like... Lily is like Nightmare Alley for sexual predators. Oh, no. One of the 
dumbest things I have ever seen. Um, That's funny. Not to shit on, you know, a movie that's 70 years old, um, lest I look like an idiot, but uh, yeah, that's that's my boot. Sorry, Leslie Caron. Jaja Gabor's in that movie. Sorry, I just I brought it up she on sure that. sure is. Uh, Charles Walters directed that movie. Okay. Um, oh, I'm like, like literally the first photo on IMDb is Leslie Caron uh, talking to a puppet, it seems like. Okay. Yeah, she, it, like she's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> An orphaned is, young woman becomes part of a puppet act and forms a relationship with the antisocial puppeteer. You really don't get movies like that anymore, Chris, is what I'm going to say. That logline doesn't really uh, assert itself too often. You know, so. I've seen some people dog on some... musicals or quasi-musicals in this era that the Academy nominated that it's like, well, they just nominated these type of faux, splashy musicals. This movie is absolutely the worst of them. It looks (laughs) like shit. It looks cheap as hell, even by those standards, and... Phenomenal. I gather that it's like it it's it was like their costume cinematography kind of shape, you know, just like that type of movie uh respected in that way but it is dumb <laughs> all right uh i respect this i love this choice i respect your boot. especially opposite uh, gentlemen prefer blondes which is like master class musical sure yes all right i love this joe look look to the skies what oh no is it another hot air balloon <laughs> It's coming in fast. It is of like not only a really good aeronaut. Like maybe some ha- many have said that this is the best aeronaut coming for a crash landing. Joe, it's Jorge Molina. Oh my God, Jorge! Careful landing that balloon on our uh, on, on the piazza here. And uh, once you land, let us know who you're choosing for your Oscar snub. Hello. My name is Joan Crawford, and I am here on behalf of past guest Jorge Molina to accept this award for him. No, hi. Hello, boys. It's Jorge of Big Eyes and Beatrice Dinner fame, and I am bringing to the table as one of this Haraskar Bus's 100 snubs, Joan Crawford in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Best Actress during the 35th Academy Awards. However, it is not just because I love the quality of the performance that was left out so much, although I do believe Crawford is just as good as Betty Davis in the movie, and actually has a harder job in it. Blanche is a straight woman to baby Jane's lunacy, and she brings empathy and pathos to a character that could have easily gotten swallowed down. No, no, it is because of the Oscars moment that that snob brought us. Whatever happened to Baby Jane was sold as a Davis-Crawford joint project from the start. It was meant to revitalize both of their careers equally, and led to one of the most controversial and fascinating productions in Hollywood history. The tension and onset quarrels between the two of them became stuff of legends. And yes, this is where I point everyone that hasn't done so to go watch what I think is Ryan Murphy's magnum opus, the miniseries Feud, Betty and Joan. Seriously, it is so good. Um, in the end, however, only Davis en- ended up getting an Oscar nomination alongside eventual winner Anne Bancroft, Catherine Hepburn, Geraldine Page, and Lee Remick, with Crawford getting snubbed. Here's where we cue Susan Sarandon saying, the finest snub. Uh, but Crawford wasn't going to go without a fight. Like a good, messy bitch who lives for drama, she personally phoned every single other nominee in the lineup and convinced them not to attend the ceremony and let her accept the award on their behalf if they were to win. Because who could say no to Joan Crawford? They all agreed. Uh, During the ceremony, when Anne Bancroft's name was announced, Joan stepped into the stage and accepted the award for her as an inflamed Betty Davis watch from the sidelines. Again, watch the one episode of Feud devoted to the Oscars. It's thrilling television. 
So, as much as I adore the movie, I actually wouldn't trade any of the actual nominees with Crawford, because her snob gave us one of the most divine moments in Oscars history that could have only ever existed with those stars in that point in time. Remember, snobs are never about hate, snobs are about pain. <laughs> Perfect exit line. Wow, the Jorge. best aeronaut. Yeah. Great guest. And uh, Messy Bitch Who Lives for Drama. I love any of our inclusions that really are just about the drama. Well, I mean, we can't resist, right? That's uh, that's that's plain to see. Um, <laughs> I love this choice. It is both uh, qualitatively good. I think it's you, you really can't have one without the other. And what hap- whatever happened to Baby Jane, they both uh, performed that so well. It is also a uh, indelible moment of Oscar lore. So yes, we will uh, happily accept this suggestion from Jorge. Thank you, Jorge. Um, safe travels as you fire up the uh, the burner on your balloon. Um, go go touchdown at uh, at the home of Salma Hayek's character in Magic Mike's Last Dance. She's still uh, you know holding a party. You can you can catch it by the end there and uh, and have a good time. All right. Shall we continue? Continue. All right. Isn't the whole point that Tramp changes? Okay, maybe in the past he stole chickens, ran around without a license, and wasn't always sincere with members of the opposite sex. But through his love for Lady and the beneficent influences of fatherhood and matrimony, he changes and becomes a valued member of that, you know, rather idyllic household. 1998, best screenplay. Um... Original, original screenplay, yes. But 1998 best original screenplay. I'm going to give this nomination to one of my just go to favorite movies. I watched it again this morning for uh, you know countless. Uh, I've lost count of the number of times I've seen this movie. It's Whit Stillman's The Last Days of Disco. Whit Stillman was nominated for. Metropolitan in 1990, which was his breakthrough movie, um, a really interesting, you know, nomination. Especially looking back, I love it when the screenplay category really goes off of the, you know, the beaten path of what the other nominees are that year. I would say The Last Days of Disco is definitely my favorite of the Whit Stillman movies. Definitely, um, I think the the screenplay that I wish he was nominated for instead. Um, nothing against Metropolitan, if we had to choose, is all I'm saying. So um, it's a movie that is deceptively clever, right? It's a movie that is deceptively intu- not intuitive, insightful, is the word that I'm looking for that begins with an I-N. Um about its subject matter. I think on the surface, you look at this movie and you're like, oh, a movie about the disco era starring, you know, Whit Stillman's parade of, you know, white preppy achievers and whatever. And um, I'm like, yeah, that's the point, right? The point of it is this was the this was the end of the disco era as experienced by the, you know, the interlopers and the status seekers and the yuppies and the you know, and it and it follows their story, and they are insufferable, but in that Whitstillman way where they're like fascinatingly so, right? Their mm-hmm. conversations are sparklingly written, 
inanities and and you know they're all sort of telling on themselves in different ways um Kate Beckinsale and Chris Eigeman in particular give every single one of these perfectly scripted lines just exactly the right arch tone of like ludicrous self-regard and this kind of false brand of introspection that feels very self-serving. Whit Stillman is an expert in all of that, uh, creates a movie of perfect and hilarious dialogue that is also a really interesting comment on this particular era and this idea of sort of social movements coming to an end when it sort of filters down to people who don't know what they want from this era, except that they want to belong to it or to something or to, you know, take a grab at that status even briefly. And yet it's also very likable for as much as like, for as much as a lot of these categories, characters are unlikable. It is a very charming movie. It is a very watchable movie. You don't sort of like, you know, it's not a movie that you hate watch, right? It's not, uh, you know, that Matt Keesler character is actually like really um, sweet. His little speech at the end where he talks about like the disco era and what it's going to mean. And it's so silly that it's coming from this character. And yet he's, you know, it's very heartfelt. Anyway, um, a tremendous some movie. Some of that goes to with Stillman. Surprisingly, because it's, you know, his movies can be so biting at times. It's so clear that, there's no ill will meant towards any of these uh, right. characters that he creates. This um, is not an angry movie. This is not a bitter movie. This is a, um, there's appreciation in these, you know, characters being, you know, as, as off the mark as they are. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lovely movie. It's so much fun. I love it so much. Uh, so yeah, definitely the, screenplay of his that I would like to uh, add an Oscar nomination for. Um, The nominees that year, Mark Norman and and Tom Stoppard win the Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. Uh, Warren Beatty and Jeremy Pixer are nominated for Bullworth. Roberto Benigni and Vincenzo Cerami for Life is Beautiful. Robert Rodot for Saving Private Ryan. And then Andrew Nichol for The Truman Show. What do we think of this this lineup, Chris? Easy answer. Yeah, I think so. Um, ultimately I like most of these movies. I, I bet, I imagine my lineup in 98 is much, much, much different from this. Um, but like Shakespeare in Love is the good and rightful winner. Although I'd have probably given it among these nominees to Andrew Nichol for the Truman Show, just because I think there is, you know, there is insight and forward thinking and, and uncanniness in the Truman show that really probably deserved. And Shakespeare in love was winning everything that year. Um, (laughs) but yeah, you, you get rid of life is beautiful. Like it's just, I think anytime we talk about anything in 98, that's going to get booted, we're probably going to talk about life is beautiful. It's just not the movie for me. We talked a little in the last time about how much I'm a little bit reluctant to dump on this movie because there were people who genuinely really liked it, but it is not the movie for me. And, um, Certainly on a screenplay level, like, God, there's so many better screenplays. And, and, Whereas and Last Days of Disco with is... Stillman's script, it's like, there, it's it's just so smart, especially like using history to, mm-hmm. you know, be emblematic of something else. Because, you know, yeah. it's set in this period of, you know, the title says it all, The Last Days of Disco. It's as disco is dying and these white yuppies have their hand on it. So, of course, it's not cool anymore. Yeah. But, it's also 
about that time of your life where you're moving past a certain group of friends that have been your friends from you know a youth college yeah yeah yeah, college or you know you know i think if you connect to it you might see like high school friends in yourself in this movie and it's like sure 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 a time that is supposed that is looked back on as if it is frivolous which is the way that people look at the genre of disco too so the mirroring of those two is a lot more elegant than i made it sound but is smart and funny and results in a really joyful movie i always think of the ending set to the ojs Ugh. and it's ju- it is just fucking exquisite <laughs> also just and this has nothing to do with the screenplay but like that soundtrack is perfectly appointed just wall to wall i mean mm-hmm. it in some ways assembling a disco soundtrack is the easiest job in the world because you just have like a plethora of fantastic choices but uh, it doesn't choose the obvious choices though. not always yes you're right about that um all right chris where are you going next i can't say i didn't enjoy some of it nick teased out in me things i didn't know existed a lightness a humor an ease but I made him smarter, sharper. I inspired him to rise to my level. I forged the man of my dreams. So I have another movie that I had a hard time placing in terms of where I wanted to put its snub. So I kind of took the easy route and chose the most obvious one, the one that is still so thoroughly shocking. This nomination didn't happen for this movie, even if I might have put it elsewhere i feel more strongly about it we're talking best adapted screenplay of 2014 how the fuck did gillian flynn not get nominated for gone girl i know shows up everywhere i think it's ultimately that the academy did not get or understand that movie because like i would think about putting it I thought about snubs for director, picture, best actor. Ben Affleck will never have a better performance in his entire career. Why? Because in this movie, he is playing Ben Affleck. Um, the other thing about Gone Girl the at, on an adaptation level is everybody read that book that same right. year. Like, everybody was reading that book at the same time. I brought that book... I was so excited to read that book on vacation. Like, that was like, I was so glad I was going on vacation that summer because I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to read this entire book, you know, while sitting on, you know, this, you know, comfortable little sun porch. And that's exactly the fucking thing that I did. And it was so good. Well, and I think people, I I mean, how often have like, things that people think are junky get nominated for Oscars and how often do people adapting their own work get nominated for Oscars but like if I can find any logic however wrongheaded about her not getting this nomination for adapting her own book is that it's like well she adapted her own book how difficult is that and then people are like yeah but Gone Girl is trash whereas like the movie is this kind of (laughs) fulcrum of storytelling it just launches there is absolutely no it is nothing but meat on this bone it is i think the book is structured in a way that makes it work as a book and then the way that she adapts it into a movie streamlines that story in a way to make it work for a movie Mm -hmm. but you know accentuates all of the story beats that are supposed to happen and find flow to it there's so many peaks in this story yeah 
that you know structuring it into one streamlined story is more difficult than it seems like because how do you just do peaks on peaks on peaks on peaks right you know so it's like you have to find those valleys those character details throughout and yeah Gone Girls, Gone Girl, Catch Me on the Right Day. It is my favorite Fincher movie. It yeah. is. And listen, Anne Hathaway is right. It is the greatest romantic comedy of our time. Full <laughs> stop. Our um, finest film critic, Anne Hathaway. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I I love Gone Girl so much. This it was fully shocking, and you know because it only gets the nomination for Rosamund Pike. They yeah. Gillian Flynn and David Fincher release some press relief that is definitely fake that they announced some project that they're going to do together basically about award season basically saying we don't care this is all stupid yeah and we're fine not getting nominated is the impl- the implication that i took behind that but you know so they're not hurting gillian flynn has still sold millions and millions and millions yeah. of books yeah um good for her but All yeah, right. the nominees that year, The Imitation Game wins, American Sniper, Inherent Vice, the Theory of Everything, and Whiplash is not are a great category. All of the other nominees. Whiplash being a somewhat contentious screenplay nominee because at the very last minute, I think like right up until I forget how much this bled into the actual voting period. That it was based on its own short film, right? Yes, and there was I think some awards bodies had considered it original, some did mm-hmm. not, and then I think there might have been some small degree of arbitration to require where it would be eligible in the Oscars. And yeah. at that point, it seemed like it would be a nominee yeah. either way, regardless of what category they would put it in. But yeah, yeah. Uh, just an interesting uh, forgotten tidbit about that movie. Yeah. I mean, my boot is maybe surprising for some. Uh, no question american sniper that awful islamophobic movie that talks out of both sides of its mouth i kind of expected Um, you to nicole page brooks this whole category uh no because i mean inherent vice while i am not always on its wavelength i can respect it for what it is and there are things i like about it whiplash i am not a whiplash dissenter i think whiplash is a good movie okay um okay theory of everything is boring but not you know um an instrument of hate <laughs> no sure i get why you're you're booting american sniper i'm just saying were it me i think i'd probably i, I mean i hate american sniper sniper it talks out of both sides of its mouth in you know trying to uh develop empathy for yeah uh, veterans but also being like oorah at the same time sure uh, and the imitation game, I think it's fine. <laughs> like the the campaign around that movie was far more annoying than anything in the movie. Yeah. Do I think it should be winning Oscars? No, but sure. like, yeah, I think it's fine. Yeah. All right, home stretch. Let's do this. Let's do it. Um, since you never got around to it in high school, I was wondering if you could sign my yearbook. And uh, please don't tell me to fuck off because it really hurts my feelings. I hurt your feelings. Yeah, all the time. Tremendous! That's tremendous. Go get your stupid yearbook. I would be happy to sign it. Okay, great. My next choice, uh, I've talked a lot about uh, wanting to supplement the acting categories with comedy performances. They are quite a few of my uh, 
snub choices among the actors. This one is no different. This was actually a pretty fa- a year that famously did include a comedy performance, but I say, why not have two? Uh, I'm talking about the 1997 Best Supporting Actress category. My nominee is Janine Garofalo for Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Hear me out. Ultimately, with Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, the performances that highlight it are obviously Lisa Kudrow and Mira Sorvino. Choosing which one of them to add to Best Actress was a task that I did not want to bring upon myself. Uh, ultimately, probably I go with Mira slightly over Lisa, but like, who wants to have to split that hair? And ultimately, this is maybe the fan coming out. Uh, I love Janine Garofalo so much. I love her persona. I love her uh, her comedy, her her method of delivery. There are two, I think, great, iconic Janine Garofalo screen performances. One is Reality Bites. The other one is this. Uh, she plays Heather Mooney, the um, embittered former classmate of Romy and Michelle, who actually is the one who informs Romy of the class reunion at this tremendous scene at the DMV where she could not be more hostile. She does explain that she is the woman who invented the quick-burning cigarettes. <laughs> and then the cut to, to uh, what does she say, like, uh, 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 twice the flavor and half the time for the girl on the go or something like that. It's, all this stuff is like, I I would love to know how much of Janine Garofalo's delivery in this movie is on the page versus something that she's sort of like, because it all sounds like she's like, it's could be stuff from her stand up, right? Like it's in terms of like delivery, it all feels like it's just rattling off the dome. And um, it's, she's so fucking funny. The scene at the end where Mooney is a grumpy cat, basically how like, yeah, I, I don't think it's an easy task to make Heather Mooney as lovable as Heather Mooney is. She's because there's so this, lovable. Heather Mooney is like the quintessential, like high school girl who thinks that just because she's not uh, a popular mean girl means that she's not a mean girl. No, Heather Mooney is as fucking mean, if not meaner. Than well, all of those that's girls. the best scene for her in the movie, though, is they're at the reunion. She's so mean to Cameron Mannheim. She calls her Toby Dumbfuck at one point, which makes me laugh so much. And then, but then Cameron she, Mannheim in this movie is so good. But then Cameron Mannheim is like, can you sign my yearbook? And can you please not tell me to fuck off? Because it really hurts my feelings. It always hurt my feelings. And Janine Garofalo at this point, er, and Heather is so, because she doesn't think like anybody cared enough about her to feel wounded by her in high school, right? And so she's so happy to find out that she had this effect on somebody in high school. She just goes, tremendous. Absolutely. I will sign your stupid fucking yearbook. It's so good. Um, I just love her so much. She's so funny. It's a very small performance. She only has maybe like four scenes in this, plus I guess her flashbacks. She's in the movie less than you remember. Less than you remember, right? She's gone for for that whole, I mean, the pacing of Romeo and Michelle, a movie that I love, the pacing of that movie is bizarre. That flashback in the middle of the movie goes on so long and like yeah. way longer than you remember. Um, but anyway, it's a wonderful movie and, you know, Garofalo is always going to be one of my, you know, 90s icons. And this performance in particular, people don't quite realize just how funny she is. And like Joan Cusack. 
Yeah. Uh, Joan Cusack is nominated for In and Out this year in 97, and everybody made such a big deal. Oh my God, comedy. Comedy's finally being nominated. It's just like, yeah, we can have more than one. Like, it doesn't just have to be one nominee from a broad comedy. So, anyway, uh, Cusack's nominated. Basinger, Kim Basinger is nominated and wins for LA Confidential. Minnie yeah. Driver for Goodwill Hunting. Julianne Moore for Boogie Nights. And then Gloria Stewart for Titanic. I don't want to draw this out. I don't want to be mean. House um, down, boot. House oh, down boot. That's interesting. I didn't even really consider that. I too. I don't. What? I don't think Basinger should have won, but I don't think Gloria Stewart should have been nominated. And I love so much about Titanic. Uh, I am. I am a full Titanic stan. But in terms of supporting Gloria actress, Stewart should have been nominated just for giving us that. It's been eighty-four years, Jeff. She's like the third best supporting actress in that movie. Like. Uh, I think Frances Fisher is better than she is. I think Kathy Bates is better than she is. Um, I understand why she was nominated. It's a great story. She's, you know, she's a lovable old lady. She had been around forever. She is the featured part of that frame story. Um, I think I think Basinger is probably good enough to be nominated, but not to win. And yeah, you I'm mean, getting rid did of... Did we do it? <laughs> How do you not? I'm not swayed. I'm not swayed by your A-plus impersonation of Gloria Stewart in Titanic. She is the LaToya Jackson to your Nene Leakes. You are just looking at her and saying, you are an old lady. <laughs> and you are saying, boot that nice old I lady. Am. How I'm saying, you? drop that gem in the ocean and and uh, drop yourself in the ocean right after that. No, um, I do get mad at her for dropping the gem in the ocean. Carrie's gather, Joe Reed. Do not like, let him... Do not let him get away with this. Poor Susie Amos didn't even realize the inheritance she had coming her way in that movie. And uh, yeah, Susie Amos should be her character should be pissed in that movie. Like, yeah, I'm saying like I you should dump that old bag into the ocean right after after that. Jesus, I'm saying. Um, well, I mean, they kind of have money. Didn't it? Didn't Rose end up? falling into like horse money or something <laughs> she had horse money she uh iconic uh horse heiress uh, uh rose duet calvert yes um anyway uh yeah i'm booting gloria stewart i'm so sorry all right wow. what do you have next? you should be ashamed All right, so this hot air balloon is taking us up, up through the tropopause. We're passing, uh, we're passing all of the spirits who are gathering hands and repairing the tropopause. Oh we're God! Going past them, we're going. Where are we going? Outer space. <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this? Okay, I get it now. All right, fantastic. Uh, best original song, 2013. From the motion picture Inside Lewin Davis, I'm talking about Please, Mr. Kennedy. Now, if any Garys want to get particular about this, I do think that there was some type of like, well, it was inspired, it, it's so clearly inspired by these mm-hmm. weird bullshit, like, uh, socially motivated uh, uh, folk songs from the 60s that were like, goofy and kind of terrible, but like, were for a good cause, etc. Uh... <laughs> this so it's kind of loosely based off of some of those and the 
might have been deemed ineligible. We don't care about ineligibility. Shouldn't come what may be eligible for Moulin exactly. Rouge? Exactly. I rest my case. Yeah. Um, what a fucking funny song. <laughs> um, I just think we were robbed of seeing this movie, seeing this song performed live on the Oscars, and we should be outraged by that every single day of our lives. Um, Oscar Isaac, Justin Timberlake, and a l- very largely cowboy-hatted <laughs> Adam Driver. Adam Driver is a huge man. He really he is. He is a huge man. And that hat on him is so huge, a family of four could live in that hat. <laughs> Um, it's, it's speaking of Cameron Mannheim, it's Cameron Mannheim's sheriff hat when she's in Scary Movie 3 playing Cherry Jones from Signs. <laughs> Where every time they cut to her, the hat is bigger. Yeah. Inside Lewin Davis, uh, a movie that luckily got, I think, it got a sound nomination and a cinematography nomination. Should have also gotten Oscar Isaac a nomination. I love that movie, but that song is just this weird... Not even midpoint of the movie, but, you know, it's such a, like, dour, somewhat misanthropic movie, because it's the Coens, of course it is. Right. And then you have this absolute bizarre number that, yeah, uh, you know, really embodies a segment of the music scene it's talking about that, you know, we really don't uh discuss you know the type of music you hear Lou and Davis doing in the rest of the movie is what's talked about and of course it's like it's he passes the judgment on it that maybe we as the audience it's like it's a piece of shit whatever just give me quick money and then it becomes a hit and he could have you know lived off of that stupid song right right um so it's got a really ironic narrative purpose to it this is also a very interesting original song year let it go wins Happy from Despicable Me 2. Everybody's dancing with those minions on uh, the Oscar ceremony. Uh, The Moon Song from Her. We love Karen O. Um, uh, Ordinary Love from Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, one of the random Bono nominations. Right. And then, notoriously, historically, famously... Alone Yet Not Alone, from Alone Yet Not Alone, which I realize I typed Alone I'm, Yet Not A, Lone, I'm as in laughing. Alone, in our uh, outline because I was typing too fast. Honestly, it's, the joke tells itself. Um, it's I've been getting, laughing at it for like the last five minutes and knowing uh, that like... It's and I just, just now saw it. It's so funny. Uh, this is what happens when I type fast. Um, <laughs> gets disqualified because of shady... Uh, yeah. Behind the scenes nominating practices from the songwriter who was like the head yeah. of the songwriting branch. So uh, technically, Chris, you don't have to boot any of these if you don't want to. There is a open slot here that you could just. I'm saying, yeah, you have a disqualified nominee, and I understand why you wouldn't just replace it with whatever got sixth place. But maybe the Oscars kind of should. Uh, but yeah, obviously it's alone yet not alone. Not just because it was a disqualified nominee, but yeah. also because have you listened to alone yet not alone? It is a garbage. I um, haven't because I didn't have to because it got disqualified before I watched all the nominees. So yes, I was fine. But like you know, a lot of 
upbeat stuff for the whole family and a Bono song. Right. Why not also put Please Mr. Kennedy in there? Yeah, I think that's the right choice. Also, shout out to uh, Clay Keller, who essentially demanded that we include Oscar Isaac for Inside Lewin Davis in our snubs. <laughs> and I just want to say, Clay, this is our uh, tribute to Inside Lewin Davis. So um, uh, 100 is a very small number, is what I said then and what I will say now. Um. Chris, we're in our home stretch. One more pick and a piece. this is where I think uh, we're going to get uh, in trouble. I don't think we're going to get in trouble. I think this is a bulletproof choice. I just think there is uh, – it comes with a little bit of a technicality that we're going to talk about in a second. Do you think you're happy? Like, as happy as you thought you'd be when you were my age. Seriously? You don't ask people questions like that. You're my mom. <laughs> Especially your mom. Look, wondering if you're happy, it's a great shortcut to just being depressed. We're going to go to the best actress category of 2016. Um, a category we have discussed a lot uh, for good reason. And we are, I am nominating Annette Benning from the Mike Mills movie 20th Century Women. I understand that this means that because of our one per category uh, rule, Amy Adams for Arrival, a performance that I adore and definitely was a notable snub at the Oscars that year, uh, will not make the 100 for this list uh, based on our ground rules. With great respect, we say to Amy, um, I'm going to hold up a... a, a, a board with a whiteboard with the word uh snub we yes we've snubbed that's what i'm saying it's just snubbed your snub remains amy adams i'm so sorry um arrival did get a best picture nomination so like arrival did amy adams also has a lot of oscar and also that um annette benning is my favorite performance in any category that year in 2016 uh she plays dorothea fields in 20th Century Woman, a 20th Century Women, a movie that is so dear to me and so wonderful and wise, and um, it's kind of a movie about a ragtag little family, <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Which I love, I adore that kind of you know living in this ramshackle house that Billy Crudup is constantly <laughs> making improvements on. Um, with uh, Annette Benning and her son and Greta Gerwig and and Al Fanning is there and um, she's a really really fascinating character. I think Mike Mills writes this character very well, um, and Benning plays her with a sparkle in her eye, but a very sort of wise about the ways of the world kind of woman she's a very curious person i love her curiosity i love the way benning plays it i love the sort of faith she has in other people while still being like i said kind of wary about the world that line reading where um she says you know well yes and no to her son like that really sums up her character a lot in this movie right where she's um She's sort of seeing the the world on both sides of that coin, and she's seeing the way it's presenting to her son, and she wants to, you know, be the best example that she can be for him for, you know, experience in the world and living a life, while at the same time being a protective mother and being somebody who wants to sort of uh, 
if not shelter this kid, then at least like make sure that he doesn't come to harm by doing dumb shit things like holding his breath for as long as he can or whatever, hyperventilating himself in the woods and passing out and all this sort of stuff. Um, what a great movie. Annette Bening has never won an Oscar. This should have been in a perfect world. This would have been her win. And, uh, we are all looking ahead to Nyad as, uh, you know, who knows for, for the future. Uh, she was nominated at the Golden Globes. The Independent Spirit Awards, the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards, the Critics' Choice, ultimately uh, runs out of momentum by the Oscars and doesn't get nominated. Chris, without what, with the caveat that this is my pick, this was also your pick. Uh, this was one that we it had shared. crossed both of our ballots. Uh, it's one of the surprisingly few that we had on both of our long lists. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the parameters help us, you know, have some type of order to our list. Amy Adams, I still am very confident, is going to come back uh, with another performance on the Arrival level. I understand, you know, the feeling of Arrival is one of her greatest performances, and she's been nominated for probably multiple performances that you could not say that about. Sure. Um, But... This, the, I mean, Annette Benning is on a whole other level from the rest of her career, even in this movie. I think she is not as a negative, um, a rather mannered performer sometimes mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. that she usually works to her benefit in ways that have been very funny um, before. But, like, yeah. this is such a natural performance, but natural in projecting a lot of complexity and a lot of complexity of response to how this woman is uh you know responding to both her child a changing political environment um yeah this performance reminds me in a lot of surprising ways sometimes a lot of ways of my grandmother in a way that i am absolutely not emotionally prepared to talk about on mic um yeah, this the I mean I think this is probably one of the performances of the past decade. Yeah. Um, in terms of who I get no-brainer. rid of, yeah, in terms of who I get rid of, this is kind of a no-brainer. We don't really need to spend a ton of time on this. Uh Emma Stone wins for La La Land, Isabelle Huppert is nominated for L, Ruth Nega for Loving, Natalie Portman for Jackie, and then Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins. Uh I don't hate Flo Fojo as much as uh, other people, and yet... Other people who you co-host podcasts with. Right, and yet this is easy, right? We can boot Meryl Streep for Florence Foster Jenkins. Um, It's it's by far the least of these performances. She has enough nominees or nominations that she doesn't need this one. She's nominated the very next year for a much better performance in the post, so... uh, We're going to boot Meryl for Annette and be a happier... Uh, uh, culture because of it. Chris, you have one left for this segment of the list. So what do you have? Siempre que te pregunto que cuando como y donde Tú siempre me respondes. Listen, my sister, I didn't want you out on the limb taking all of the heat for not including 
a very notorious snub in favor of another performance. So I am following that up. We're talking Best Actor of 2004. I very much debated having Paul Giamatti in Sideways on this list. The 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 generally accepted sixth place finisher. Generally thing. accepted sixth place. One of the shocking snubs of the past 20 years. However, I can't in good conscience not have my winner of Best Actor ahead of Paul Giamatti that year. Paul Giamatti, who... His snub for Sideways is going to be talked about ad fucking nauseam this year when he comes back with another Alexander Payne movie. I will be very surprised if he is not a frontrunner for that movie for this very reason. Um, This is the performance I have in this best actor race, though, is one that we have talked about on other podcasts. I am consistently in awe of this performance it is gael garcia bernal in bad education good movie good performance there are so many almodovar uh performers who should also be oscar nominated along with penelope cruz and antonio banderas for you know their consistent collaboration uh with him throughout their career but uh gael garcia bernal only really has this movie with almodovar um in which he is playing a wannabe uh, actor who also performs in drag. He goes in and out of a story that might be a screenplay, it might be his real life, but he has to pull a con both on ultimately the protagonist and the audience um, in this way that obviously has to be very alluring, draw you in, draw you into the lie, draw you into the storytelling of it. Mm-hmm. On top of being this incredibly captivating screen performance, uh, we talked about on our screen drafts on drag movies, um, that in drag he looks like Julia Roberts. <laughs> um, did you see uh, Cassandro, the Sundance movie with him? I did, this? yes. I skipped it because I knew it was Amazon, and I figured it would be accessible soon, but they haven't released it They haven't it yet, released it he's yet. supposed to be tremendous. He's very good, so yeah. It, if it takes him anywhere uh, towards Oscar, I will be very happy. I think he is someone that absolutely uh, we need to be talking about in overdue terms yeah. as an actor. Um, but this performance is... Among my favorite Almodovar performances. Um, and yeah. I had thought about putting other uh, of his performers, like Cecilia Roth for All About My Mother, on this list. This is the one that uh, yeah. shined brightest to me to be worthy of mention. He's great in this movie. I love this movie. Um, yeah, no no complaints. I think, you know, Giamatti, yes, the the widely regarded sixth place snub but i think i like that this is your pick so and if we're gonna do a list like this we're also gonna make it a little personal yeah we are all right uh as we were talking earlier this is the year that jamie fox wins for ray the other nominees are don Cheadle in hotel rwanda johnny depp in finding neverland leonardo dicaprio in the aviator and clint eastwood in million dollar bebe yes this is obvious. It's Johnny Depp getting the boot for Finding Neverland. What uh, the fuck is Finding Neverland doing in all of these Oscar nominations for this kind of mm-hmm. soggy 
not all that much to write home about movie. I think especially that is true of his performance, which is we on this podcast have done a lot to say that the Afterglow nomination for Charlie's Theron in North Country is like quintessential, even though he doesn't win for Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. This is just 100% an Afterglow nomination. Johnny Depp's performance in Pirates of the Caribbean earned like multiple nominations for Finding Neverland. Finding Neverland gets nothing if Johnny Depp is not a nominee for Pirates of the Caribbean. Like it really is striking the the size of the halo that that persisted for that next year. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Get rid of it. Okay, Chris, that (gasps) is our list. For part three wow. of 100 we, Years and 100 Snubs, we are past the We have proven so point. much weather patterns today. <laughs> we, have, we have changed science yes. forever. Yeah, we science will never be the same. weather. Yeah. All right, I'm going to round up uh, uh, very quickly our list of this next 20 bef- to uh, sum up part three. And uh, then we will turn the corner into part four next week. But for this week... Uh, 100 Years, 100 Snubs, Part 3. We have honored J. Smith Cameron in Margaret, Best Supporting Actress of 2011. Lily Gladstone, Certain Women, Best Supporting Actress 2016. Giorgio Moroder and Klaus Doldinger for The NeverEnding Story, Best Original Score, 1984. Malcolm X, Best Picture of 1992. The World Is Not Enough from The World Is Not Enough, Best Original Song, 1999. Isabelle Huppert, The Piano Teacher, Best Actress, 2002. Lashana Lynch, Best Supporting Actress, The Woman King, 2022, from our guest Tara Ariano. Jude Law, Best Supporting Actor, I Heart Huckabees, 2004. Carol, Best Picture, 2015. Jane Campion, Bright Star, Best Director, 2009. Arthur Max, Seven, Best Art Direction, 1995. Jill Bilcock, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, Best Film Editing, 1996. John Cazell, The Godfather Part II, Best Supporting Actor, 1974. Mike Giolakis, It Follows, Best Cinematography, 2015. Marilyn Monroe, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Best Actress, 1953. Joan Crawford, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Best Actress, 1962, Courtesy of Jorge Molina. Whit Stillman, The Last Days of Disco, Best Original Screenplay, 1998. Gillian Flynn, Gone Girl, Best Adapted Screenplay, 2014. Janine Garofalo, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, Best Supporting Actress, 1997. Please Mr. Kennedy, Inside Lewin Davis, Best Original Song, 2013. Annette Benning, 20th Century Women, Best Actress, 2016. And Gael Garcia Bernal, Bad Education, Best Actor, 2004. 22 is a lot of things to read all at once. Um, (laughs) A tremendous, tremendous installment of this list, if I do say so myself, Chris. All bangers. All bangers. No filler. Justice for Gloria Stewart. Yeah, 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 whatever. (laughs) All right. I think that's our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check us out on Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. Joe, tell the listeners where they can find you. Twitter and letterboxed at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. 
And I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Crispy File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mebius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So hop in this basket and uh, <laughs> tell us you really do have a balloon and we are... <laughs> Not only really good aeronauts, we are the best aeronauts. All right. That's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more snubs. A ticket to.